Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we'll be continuing our coverage of HBO's miniseries, The Pacific. A couple weeks ago, we covered the first four episodes of the series, and today we'll be looking at episodes five, six, and seven, which cover the battle on Peleliu. Then we'll wrap up the series in a few weeks. To help us separate fact from fiction, joining me again today is historian and author Marty Morgan. If you listen to part one of the series, you'll know Marty has been working on an upcoming series for the Discovery Channel about the Japanese balloon bombing campaign in World War II, as well as the new Call of Duty Vanguard game. And for our purposes today, Marty was also involved in the production of The Pacific. Before we start today's discussion, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the Americans and Germans had an agreement for how prisoners would be treated, while the Americans and Japanese had no agreement. Number two, the Japanese launched a number of major offensives against the Americans on Peleliu. Number three, Some of the containers used to deliver potable water to the Marines had been used to carry gas. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Marty Morgan about the historical accuracy of episodes 5, 6, and 7 of... The Pacific. Episode 5 kicks off with John Bazelon and Virginia Gray embarking on a tour to get people to buy U.S. war bonds after he received the Medal of Honor for his actions at Guadalcanal. Was this sort of publicity tour to raise money for the war effort something that all Medal of Honor recipients did, or was it just John Bazelon? A number of different recipients of the Medal of Honor were employed in these war bond tours. And I should point out, too, that it wasn't just Medal of Honor recipients. It was it was a variety of types of people. The Medal of Honor recipients attracted a great deal of attention. And so they were obviously great choices for Navy public affairs, Army public affairs. And so they reached out to them. They also went reached out to people who were recipients of awards like the Distinguished Service Cross or the Navy Cross. And so, so they reached out to people who were vetted and curated. They needed people to look like a recruiting poster. They needed them to present well. They needed them to have compelling stories. And my, my God, John Bassalone checked all of those boxes. I mean, I mean, you've seen the photos of the guy. The guy was, he was beautiful. The guy was magnificent looking. He looked excellent in uniform. He was all cut up and shredded. And he he provided this really fascinating working class hero story. You know, a fascinating detail about this is that when Bassalone was ultimately approached to receive the Medal of Honor, he, and he understood that it was for Guadalcanal, he did not automatically assume that he was receiving it in association with what he had done during the Battle of Henderson Field. He had been engaged in patrol activities the following month, and he assumed that he was receiving the Medal of Honor for that. I find that to be a fascinating detail about his his individual story, because 
by the end of the Guadalcanal campaign, by the time 1st Marine Divisions had taken off the island in December, there were plenty of people that had compelling stories. And it's just that the War Department needed to sort of the perfect storm of an extremely compelling story, a person who could represent it well and tell it well. And they needed it to be somebody also, most importantly, who had survived their action. By this point of the war, by late 1942, we had posthumous recipients of the Medal of Honor. There were not everybody was still alive to be able to receive the accolade of going on the war bond tour. And that's obviously a, a, an important factor of what they needed. And so Bass alone is in many ways sort of the perfect person. And Bass alone, as I believe is very well depicted in the series, becomes a bit of a household name and a bit of a celebrity because of that. Not everybody worked out perfectly on these war bond tours. Um, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but the movie Flags of Our Fathers depicts something that uh, actually did happen, where they were the three men depicted as going on the war bond tour there were not recipients of the Medal of Honor, but they were nevertheless elevated to this position of prominence by what they had endured during the Battle of Iwo Jima. And what you see depicted in that movie is that one of them didn't really do so well. He wasn't managing his survivor's guilt well. He had an enormous amount of survivor's guilt. And um, he was also an alcoholic. And the combination of those two things unleashed his inner demons. I'm talking, of course, about Ira Hayes. And Ira Hayes, during the war bond drive, although he wasn't a recipient of the Medal of Honor, he was nevertheless fulfilling the same role that John Bassalone had earlier. And Ira Hayes buckles under the pressure and he comes apart at the seams as a person. And, and so there was an obvious need to carefully hand select who you, um, who you sent on these tours because basically everybody that gets selected as a result of surviving some arduous combat experience, they're haunted to a degree. And it's a question of how well they're managing that. And Bassalone handled and managed it well. And Bassalone, he, he was a stunning success during that tour. He gave everybody exactly what they wanted. And, and what they wanted was someone who had fought off the best that the Japanese Empire could throw at them and could tell the story well, represent the Marine Corps, represent the Navy, represent the country well. And Bassalone did it. And he and no trivialized way helped to make that war bond drive a success. Yeah, I could definitely see how that would just, I mean, it's like a roller coaster of emotions because you go from going into battle to now you're essentially a rock star, you know, a celebrity and being celebrated for, in Barcelona's case, as we talked about in the last episode, the event that happened, he saw one of his good friends die and now he's being celebrated for that. That had to be so difficult. Yeah, I, I was friendly. I am friendly with this um, Medal of Honor recipient from Afghanistan, who at one point told me in confidence, like, you know, it's weird because I am constantly being asked to relive the worst day of my life. Well, if we head back to the show in episode five, still, we meet some new characters on Puvuvu in June of 1944. Uh, we meet them. It's as Eugene Sledge is arriving, he's joining his new squad, and there's uh, Snafu, Delo, and Bergen. 
Sledge also happens to run into his childhood friend, Sidney Phillips, a few days before Phillips is shipped back to the States. We also see Lecky come back from his time at the hospital to join Runner and Jurgens. The next action that the men are going to see is going to be in Palilu in September of 1944. But the impression that I got here was that the Marines used Pavuvu as a staging ground sort of sorts for Palilu. Is that a fair assessment of what happened? It is a fair assessment because they needed to park the division in an area where it could train. They also did not want to move the division inconveniently far away from the theater of operations. That was because at this point, the American military was really feeling the pinch of the Pacific logistics because to move a division, say to move a division back to Hawaii, that was a massive decision. And the logistics that it would take to bring that division back to where it could be applied against the enemy in action, that represented a serious part of this very complicated matrix of managing uh, supply lines and logistics in the Pacific War. Pavuvu, as it turns out, provides a training area that, to an adequate degree, simulated partly what the Marines would experience on Peleliu when they went into action there. And that's because you have some similarity insofar as you have godforsaken tropical island just a few degrees off the equator, which describes Pavuvu in the Solomons. It also describes Peleliu in the Palau Island group. So it would be... it. It was a good place to get the men trained up for what they would experience on Peleliu. And I can't stress this enough. What they expected the men to experience on Peleliu was three days of combat. And instead, what they got was a battle that raged for 73 days. Quite a bit more than what they bargained for. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Toward the end of episode five in the series, we see the Marines landing on Peleliu. The mission, according to the show, is to capture an airfield on the island, but landing on Peleliu is not anything like Guadalcanal that we saw in the series where they had little to no resistance. This time there were explosions everywhere, and not everyone makes it out of the landing vehicles. As I was watching this landing, again, I couldn't help but compare the sequence to the landings in Normandy that we saw in Saving Private Ryan. It's certainly more like those than the landing that we saw earlier in the Pacific when they landed on Guadalcanal. How well did the show do depicting the landing on the beaches of Peleliu? 
When the 1st Marine Division came ashore on, uh, that would be the western beaches of Peleliu on September 15, 1944, they landed against an enemy force that was extremely well-armed, extremely well-equipped, and an enemy force that put up intense opposition on the beachhead. This stands in strong contrast to the landings of Guadalcanal two years earlier, a little over two years earlier. And you might remember from our last chat about Guadalcanal, the reason that it ended up being a little bit of a non-event was because of the fact that the Japanese didn't have a fighting regiment on that island. They didn't even have a fighting battalion on that island. They had a construction engineering battalion on the island. And that's a non-combat arms unit. They weren't up to fighting and they didn't fight. They fled into the jungle and presented the beach unopposed. What the Marines got on Peleliu was the precise opposite of that. And what they got was Japanese Imperial Army at the height of its game, ready to lay it down. And that is why what the 1st Marine Division undergoes during, I mean, just the opening week of the Peleliu battle is such an enormous bloodletting. An example that I should point to, it's not depicted in the series, because in the series, we're following uh, Marines of H21 and Marines of K35. Um, but just to their left, the far left flank of the 1st Marine Division during the landings landed on White Beach on Peleliu on a cove 650 meters wide that, were, um, that was dominated by a little, a little pinnacle outcropping on its northern end called the Point. And what you get there is you get Marines of its K Company of the uh, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and they're commanded by a 26-year-old captain named George Hunt. They take the beach, they're drawing fire from a Japanese fighting position, a concrete fighting position that's still there today, that was equipped with, was armed with a Japanese Type 96 25-millimeter anti-boat gun. We call it an anti-boat gun. It could also be used as an anti-aircraft gun. But it's effectively a 25-millimeter autocannon, and that was an enormously effective weapon against the types of landing craft that would support an amphibious landing. So Higgins boats, they're made of wood. Those guns would shred those things. Um, the LVT, landing vehicle tank, or, or landing vehicle track, also known as the Amtrak. They are light-skinned vehicles. They, I mean, they, we call them light-skinned vehicles. They're technically not armored vehicles. You could put applique armor on them, but they're not intended to be armored vehicles, and they're not intended to fight like an armored vehicle. They're, attempt they're intended to transition men from big ships in deep water across a beach and move inland. That's what the LVTs are intended to, to do. And they just could not stand up to fire from a 25 millimeter gun. So when, when K-11 landed near the point, this 25 millimeter gun is destroying uh, LVTs and landing craft. The Marines ultimately get white phosphorus smoke grenades in on the position. They overrun the position. They set up a perimeter. And um, during the course of the first, that would be 30 hours of the Battle of Peleliu, so stretching from September 15th all the way into the afternoon of the 16th, during that 30-hour time period, this one company of Marines is under constant mortar fire. They receive five heavy counterattacks, most of which occurred during that first night on the island. And by the time it's all over with, when Captain Hunt, and his men are relieved from their positions um, at, on White Beach. It's Captain Hunt and 77 men. That's all that's left of an entire Marine company. 
In other words, this marine company basically loses its, I mean, it experiences what would be considered catastrophic losses just in getting ashore and overcoming the enemy's immediate shoreward defenses. Just for the record, going into a combat action during the Second World War, going into an amphibious landing, the military wasn't dumb. They, they calculated what the losses would be. They calculated those losses on, um, on the basis of enemy strength, projected enemy strength, the intelligence that you could gather from flying aircraft overhead or maybe having submarines that spied on the island. And they would calculate the strength of the attacking force based on what the expected enemy strength was. They would then anticipate what type of weaponry the enemy would have on the beach. And they would build the assault force based on that estimate. And with that kind of an assault, uh, an assault force that's, that's glued together based on estimates of the enemy's strength and the enemy's capabilities, they tended to expect around 10% casualties. They would recognize 10% to be within the acceptable range, and they would accept that um, they would recognize that up to 20% they could still continue fighting, but they recognized that beyond 20% casualties, it was bordering on disastrous, maybe catastrophic. Well, within the one company, which would be K Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Marine Regiment, they land with almost 200 people and 77 people are still fighting at the end of the first 30 hours. So it's over 50%. It's the casualties blow past catastrophic and move to a level. I don't know what I'd call it, maybe biblical, but they move to levels that are clearly well beyond what it what was expected because what was expected is that there would be, I don't want to say light opposition, but manageable opposition on the beachhead that the Marines would after pushing aside that manageable opposition that the Marines would then move into the interior, overrun the airfield, push down the length of the island and overcome the enemy garrison. And that they expected all of that to be done in three days. That did not happen. And it's a significant revelation of what this battle was about to be when you consider that beachhead casualties are catastrophic. And as they move beyond the beachhead, it's only going to get worse. Was that something that both from the American side and the, and the Japanese side, we talked about Guadalcanal being very different. The, and then the sense there being that the Japanese were almost caught off guard that they were doing this uh, landing. And then with uh, Peleliu, the opposite, I'm assuming maybe it's the opposite. Like, oh, the Japanese are aware now that they're doing these landings. This is going to be probably going to be the next obvious target. So they bolster up their their forces there. Was that is that kind of what was going on behind the scenes? And none of that's really shown in the series. I'm just curious if that was some of the strategy. You're right on target with that. This is late 1944 Imperial Japan, and it's a lot different than late 1942 Imperial Japan was, because late 1942 Imperial Japan was one that imagined the continuing expansion of the Oceanic Empire. What happened? I am by by the time the Guadalcanal landings have occurred, yeah. The expansion of the Japanese into the Pacific had largely reached its high water mark. I mean, Midway is a turning point. People, and when I say people, I mean historians tend to argue now about whether Midway was the actual turning point of the Pacific or was it Guadalcanal. And I believe that that is a largely scholarly and therefore pointless argument because the, the period stretching between, let's say, June 1st 
1942 and January 1st, 1943. During that period of time, that, that six months, a little over six months, the basic quality of what the Empire of Japan had become militarily changed. It, it fundamentally changed. And uh, that change was manifested in, by June 1st, 1942, the Japanese Empire was, was rampaging around the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. The Japanese Empire was expanding. That expansion continued even after Midway. It just didn't extend into toward the Hawaiian Islands. That expansion continues through to Guadalcanal, but certainly by the end of the Guadalcanal campaign, the Japanese military is no longer expanding. The reality of its war, the war that it had by that point inherited, which for the record was not the war that it wanted, but the war that it got instead. The reality of that war was that the Japanese military was doing good to hold on to a network of island outposts. And what the Japanese military had seen earlier in this year, and I'm speaking like from the perspective of September 15, 1944, what the Japanese had seen since the beginning of the year was the, was, uh oh, here come the Americans. Meaning that beginning with the, right before the turn of, um, the new year in 1944, the Americans have conducted Operation Galvanic, which was the opposed amphibious landing operation in the former British Gilbert Islands. That's Tarawa and um, Macon. And so the Americans are beginning to uh, assault Japanese island outposts. Then after, shortly after the beginning of the year, you get Operation Flintlock, was the Americans come to the Marshall Islands and begin taking back important Japanese island outposts. That continues through to 1944. And when 1944 begins, so from the end of 43, when we take the former Gilbert Islands to the beginning of 44, when we take back the Marshalls, then we begin to look toward the Caroline Islands. And more importantly, we begin looking toward the Marianas Islands. And when I say Marianas, so what I mean is the historical Marianas, which included Guam, Saipan, Tinian, and then about a dozen or so other islands. Not all of which were occupied, but some of which were. And the Japanese maintained some significant and important island outposts in the Marianas, the most important of which was Saipan. Well, what the Japanese have seen in the months immediately before the Americans come to the Palau Island group is that they saw the Americans first attack and capture Saipan, which was catastrophic news to the empire because Saipan represented one of the most important Japanese Imperial Navy island bases in the Japanese empire's network of island outposts. But then they proceed to also immediately after Saipan lose Tinian, and then they lose Guam. In other words, they have lost not all of the Marianas, but to be honest, the three most important islands in the Marianas. The Japanese have other garrisons on other islands in the Marianas, but they end up being bypassed. Garrisons on islands like Pagan and Rota are simply bypassed. We leave the garrisons there and, and keep on chugging. And as we keep on chugging, I shouldn't put it that way, we keep on moving toward this overall goal, the the two competing campaigns. Um, the The early part of 1944 was spent, um, the early months are spent with an investment in the Nimitz campaign, which is the Central Pacific campaign, which is a campaign by which you um, first take the former British Gilbert Islands, then you take the Marshall Islands, and then you take the Marianas Islands, and then you set up air bases for long range, very heavy bombing activity to 
to expose the Japanese home islands to a strategic air campaign. We know that story. That's another story entirely. But that was the overall objective of this Nimitz campaign, which reaches its ultimate conclusion with the fall of Guam. And Guam is, is fully captured by the end of July 1944. We then begin setting up the airfields on Guam, Tinian, and Saipan, and we begin bombing the Japanese home islands. And we, have, we know how that story ends. But it's also important to remember that a second campaign was about to kick off in 1944, and that was the South Pacific campaign, which was led, being led by Douglas MacArthur. And in the South Pacific campaign, it imagined a series of opposed amphibious landing operations in the former Philippine Islands. We end up becoming familiar with what actually happened. But what actually happened was quite a bit different than what was planned. Because what was planned was not that we would first go to this island called Leyte and conduct landings in October 44. What was, what was planned was that we would conduct landings on the island of Mindanao and that we would land in Mindanao, then we would land at Leyte, and that you would have this two-pronged assault on the Philippines that would then ultimately be joined by a third prong when there were landings at Lingayen Gulf on Luzon just after the new year. Or, well, yeah, just in, in January 45. That was the plan. Uh, well, as, as the army was moving toward kicking off this overall assault, this liberation conquest of the Philippines, it was recognized that the ta by assessing the tactical situation, MacArthur began to question whether or not an opposed amphibious landing operation at Mindanao would be necessary. He was beginning, in other words, to envision that I could preserve part of my strength by not even conducting a landing in Mindanao, but going straight for Leyte and then attacking Luzon. So that rather than trying to attack everything, it was... It was service toward this idea of bypass what you can, attack what you can't live without. Just like in the Nimitz campaign in the Central Pacific, they had bypass, bypassed major garrisons at places like Ponape. We would famously bypass the Japanese garrisons at Kosrai and at Truck Lagoon and several other locations. Even in the Marianas, Nimitz ultimately bypasses Rota, Pagan, and a few other islands focusing instead on Tinian, Saipan, and Guam. And so it's not an entirely um, unrealistic idea, and it's not an, an entirely irresponsible idea that MacArthur realizes, you know, we don't necessarily need to lose people and lose ships and airplanes on Mindanao. Let's focus everything on Leyte, and then after Leyte, we'll go to Luzon, and then we'll attack Manila, and that'll be the end of that, which is, of course, what ends up happening. The only problem with all of this was that the overall plan contemplated as a preemptive strike to cover the Mindanao landings, attacking certain Japanese island outposts in the Palau Island Group. And when I say the Palau Island Group, there's a very important point here that when I, when I take tours, I think I'll end up taking tours to Palau again. I used to do that before COVID, but that ended. But a big point that I made is that the Palau Island Group consists of 340 islands, and you're familiar with one of them, Palau. There's 340 other islands, not all of which are important, but there are several very important islands in there in addition to Palau. To turn this back to your original question, the reality was that the Japanese from the end of 43 realized 
we're a different world. We're, we're a different empire now. We're an empire that needs to hold what we can. And we're no longer going to be building new airfields on islands that we've captured. Those days are gone. The new Japan is one where we have to build up powerful garrison forces on island outposts because the Americans are going to come and try to take them from us. And it is for that reason that Peleliu was heavily fortified. It's definitely worth mentioning that Peleliu was heavily fortified during the 1944 time period, but Peleliu had also, like other islands in the Palau Island Group, had also been fortified in the years before the war started. In fact, the Japanese did so with a great deal of secrecy. In the aftermath of the First World War, as you know, the Versailles Treaty divided up what had at one point been the German Empire, and the German Empire included places like, for example, the island of New Britain with this major, perfect deep-sea anchorage at a place called Rabaul that had at one time been German. The northern Marianas Islands, to include Tinian, Saipan, had been German as well. The Palau Island group had, to a, to a limited degree, been settled by the Germans. At the end of World War I, all of what had been German up to World War I and up to the armistice of 1918, all of those islands became a part of what was called the South Pacific Mandate. And the South Pacific Mandate um, appointed that the Empire of Japan which for the record had been an ally who was fighting technically on our side during World War I, although Japan did very little in the way of actual fighting during the war. But Japan was nevertheless an ally. Going into the Versailles Peace Treaty, Japan was an equal. And at the end of that treaty, the conclusion of that treaty that established the South Pacific Mandate gave those islands to the Empire of Japan. Now, within a few years after Versailles, the international situation had changed fundamentally and the J the Japanese empire and the United States of America suddenly found themselves in an arms race, the type of arms race that had brought on the circumstances of World War I. And so we sought to apply the brakes to that process and we invited the Japanese to the negotiating table and we would ultimately hold the Washington Naval Treaty and the Na Washington Naval Treaty I should say we had negotiations that led eventually to this treaty, and that treaty compelled both sides to limit what they were building in terms of warships, limiting specifically battleships because it was recognized after the misery and experience of World War I, it was recognized that battleships are a great way of guaranteeing you're going to get everybody really nervous and there's going to be an arms race and that will lead to warfare. And so we sought to prevent that from happening by entering, entering into this treaty agreement with the Empire of Japan. And as a part of that, we had furthermore obligated that we wouldn't begin fortifying islands in the Pacific. So the United States had this Pacific outpost um, on the former, former Spanish colony of Guam, which is still a part of the greater United States of America today. And the United States, as a part of this Washington Naval Treaty, agreed with the Empire of Japan that, listen, we will not fortify Guam if you will not fortify anything in the South Pacific Mandate. And the Japanese agreed to it and then immediately began violating it. We never did build, like if you ever get a chance to go to Hawaii and if you tour any of um, the old coast artillery locations around the island of Oahu, all of that was done after the turn of the 20th century leading up to the World War I era. And so 
literally like the island of Oahu was turned into basically the Death Star of coast artillery defenses. Guam, on the other hand, had nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's because of the fact that we were obligated by this treaty that followed World War I, where we were trying to prevent um, an arms race with the Japanese, whereby everybody's building battleships and building fortifications on islands in the Pacific. That's what we were trying to prevent. That is exactly what happened. Because the Japanese, and I love to be fair to them, but it's hard to be fair to them over this. The Japanese then, they exerted these tight controls over who got to visit places like Saipan and the Palau Island group to include the island of Peleliu. Those tight controls were in place to prevent Western eyes from seeing what the Japanese were actually doing. And what the Japanese were actually doing was fortifying the hell out of these remote island outposts in violation of this agreement with the United States. And so the Palau Island group, that includes Peleliu, its most important island is an island called Koror, which is about 35 miles north of Peleliu. And Koror ends up being the perfect place to have like your main city in the island group because it's a perfect seaport and the Japanese will violate the terms of this this treaty by building multiple submarine bases um, in the Palau Island group where they build a big submarine base. Well, they they build one submarine base and multiple seaplane bases in Palau. They then do things like blast channels through coral reefs. They do that um, right next to uh, Peleliu, by the way, to create greater access in and out through the island group, access to the open ocean, that is. They then build a military airfield on the largest of the islands in the island group. And the northernmost and the largest of all the islands in the in the Palau Island group is called Babelduap. The Japanese, during this pre-World War II time period, in fact, almost 20 years before World War II, they're beginning to build a submarine base seaplane bases, an army airfield, um, they will eventually move garrisons there. At the beginning of World War II, they're using it as a means during this early phase of supporting their attempted spread across the Pacific. It's an island group that they had before the war started, and it's an island group that they were planning to hang on to because they fortified it in violation of the treaty agreement. After the fall of Saipan, there was no bones about it. There was, there was no question about what was going to happen next for everybody. Every Japanese garrison on an island was fully aware. I mean, they were aware before Saipan, in fact. They were aware after really Tarawa, I would say. Certainly by January 1st, 1944, every Japanese colonel or general in charge of a garrison on a remote island outpost knew they're coming for me eventually. I have to be ready. And so uh, the activity associated with preparing the island for combat, it increased in, in pace and scale. And the result of that was that the, Japan, the Japanese commander in, in the Palau Island group, and keep in mind Palau is several critically important locations. This series really focuses on what happens on Peleliu, but it would be wrong to, it lets people misunderstand the battle when they don't understand the broader context. Because the broader context is that Peleliu was the, the largest southern Japanese airfield in the Palau Island group. There was a large airfield on Babelduab, the biggest island up in the north. 
There was even one more airfield south of Peleliu on the island Angar, which which is where there will be also an opposed landing and a big battle in September of 1944. The Japanese Imperial Army, however, maintains its airfield on Peleliu and focuses on that airfield because you have two intersecting runways. You've seen photos, so I bet you've seen it. Two nice, fat, long runways with big taxi and turnaround areas and hard stand areas. And that airfield, the airfield on the southern end of Peleliu, was there to support multi-engine Japanese Imperial Army a- aviation. So you could, from that airfield, park this famous aircraft that the Japanese used throughout the war, the twin-engine Betty medium bomber. Island From the airfield at the southern end of Peleliu, where there was sort of a nice, flat, basaltic plain that allowed you to establish two intersecting runways of, of nice, of healthy length, from that airfield, bombers could reach 500 miles to the west to reach the Philippines, and bombers could reach 800 miles to the northeast to Guam. And so the the fact that the Japanese had not just one island outpost at Peleliu, but really multiple island outposts in the Palau Island group, that was threatening. And that was why MacArthur realized that before I can land at Mindanao, I have to do something to neutralize not just Peleliu, but everything in the Palau Island group. And that's Angar, Peleliu. They had a fighter strip on an island called Negabus. They had the seaplane bases and then the submarine base at Karor. Then they had another fighter base and a big garrison on the island of Bibidwa, way up in the north. And that brought the overall Japanese military strength. And it was just for the record, it was mostly army, not entirely, but mostly Japanese Imperial Army. The Navy was around Koror at the seaplane bases and the submarine base. Uh, But the overall Japanese strength in the Palau Island group was over 30,000. And that's a significant garrison, as significant as places like Iwo Jima, Guam, Saipan. Um, The thing is, is that 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 strength was spread out over these multiple islands. And the most important are Angar, Babeldwab, Koror. And of course, Pelora. So the tactical situation was that within the Palau Island group, the Japanese realized that an American amphibious landing of some kind would be inevitable. They could also, they weren't stupid by this point. I mean, they were never stupid at any point during, during the war. But by this point in the war, we had shown our cards, to use an expression. We had shown what our opposed amphibious landing operations looked like. We we'd shown the form that they took, and the form that they took was that American transport ships would sail up near it, um, transfer troops into landing craft that would then go ashore, that they would be supported by large ships, battleships, cruisers that would bombard the island b- before the landings. They would be supported in the aftermath of the landings by this, this wonder weapon that we had called the LST, and that we could show up at the island, assault it, and then make an assault landing stick. They understood that that's how that worked, and so they understood how to fight it. They also understood that for the Americans to make this strategy work, they've got to have beaches. And if there's one thing that defines the Palau Island group of more than 340 islands, is there are hardly any beaches there. Hardly any. The further north you get, 
you get basically no beaches. So that Babeldwab, the biggest island of them all, Babeldwab is cliffs that go down to the sea. You can't conduct an amphibious landing there. The farther south you get, the older the island group gets. And so the lower and you know more gentle the angles are. And the result is that as the farther you get south in Palau Island group, you get some beaches. But one of the things that I that characterizes heavily the center part of the Palau Island group is this area that everyone refers to as the Rock Islands. And Palau's Rock Islands are world famous for activities like snorkeling and scuba diving. And they are stunning in their beauty, but they're dreadful, inhospitable islands. It's best to enjoy that beauty from a boat offshore than it is to go mucking around up in the jungle on these islands because you're just a few degrees off the equator. It's hot. It's extremely muggy. And you don't have a lot to work with. The islands that constitute the center part of Palau, the rock islands, they are completely incompatible with an amphibious landing because they're intense fringing reefs, very shallow water, and islands that are basically just rock out, sheer rock outcroppings. It's only when you reach the, the southern end of the island group that you get a couple of islands that present some beaches to you. And at the far southern end of the island group, you had really good landing beaches on the southernmost of the island. It's called Angar. And then you had good beaches on the western and southern sides of Peleliu. So the Japanese garrison commander, who was no idiot, realized, all right, the Americans are going to come here eventually. They're going to bomb us first. Then their ships are going to show up. Then they're going to conduct an amphibious assault. And when they conduct an amphibious assault, they're not going to be able to land up here at Babeldwab. There's no place to land. They can't really land around the center part of the island group because it's the rock islands. It's shallow. There are no beaches. It doesn't work for them. Peleliu, though, is it gives them what they need. And Angar gives them what they need. And so the Japanese commander and the Imperial Army commander in the island group chose to focus defenses there. And it was an extremely intelligent use of those defenses. Just for the record, it was largely obvious. It was a patently obvious thing. Like there was no sense in putting static units on the coast on the northern tip of Angar or the northern tip of Bibweb because the Americans aren't going to land there. You take those same units and you put them in defensive positions on Peleliu, that's a good use of that resource. Or you put them in um, defensive positions on Angar, that's a good use of the resource because the Americans can land there. And that's why, beginning on September 15, 1944, we see this two-pronged assault unfold with elements of the U.S. Army's 81st Infantry Division conducting the opposed amphibious landing of the island of Angar. And, of course, famously, the U.S., First Marine Division conducting the opposed amphibious landing on the western beaches of Peleliu. And I know that that's a lot and that that information may seem extraneous and useless, but it's, for me, extremely important in tackling a subject that I know is going to come up. And it's a subject that the series flirts with. And that subject is people have, in the decades since Peleliu, they have taken to the sport of imagining that Peleliu was an unnecessary battle. And the, the reason that they believe this is because the Mindanao operation, and keep in mind, Peleliu had to be attacked to preempt Japanese bombers on, on the airfield of Peleliu from reaching 
the Philippines. When the Mindanao operation was canceled, to the casual outside observer that doesn't fully understand everything, you could easily say, and we didn't need to land at Peleliu. To this day, that's an argument that happens every time I go to the island. And people have extremely powerfully held feelings about it. And these, the majority of people believe that Peleliu was an unnecessary battle. And they believe that because they're sort of told that over and over again by almost every printed book and the HBO miniseries, The Pacific. They're reminded time and time again, Peleliu was unnecessary. And when you, when you take Peleliu and you pluck it out of this larger and important background of complicated geography and complicated other events, if you pluck it out and single it out, sure, it looks unnecessary. But the reality is that by conducting landings at Angar and Peleliu, even though the battle on Peleliu turned out to be far, far worse than we ever imagined, in aggregate, it ties up all Japanese forces in the Palau Island group. And for the record, we bypassed all those other locations. There was never an attack on Karor, except from the air. There was never an attack on Bibudwab, except from the air. That's why it fascinates me to hear people say, we should have bypassed it. And I was like, well, we bypassed most of it. We just, in the end, didn't bypass Angar, Peleliu. And then there's this one other island where we conduct a landing that will come up for us here in a few minutes at a place called Nedibus. But what we also did was we significantly turned up the heat on the Japanese submarine base at Karor. And what it looks like to me is that the Peleliu operation for all of the misery, suffering, and loss that we had, we basically destroyed the 1st Marine Division on Peleliu. And to me, it doesn't look like that was a waste because it provided this very, very important contribution to the overall war at sea in that it greatly limited the bandwidth of the submarine base at Karor. So if, if it hadn't landed on Peleliu, then probably would have had to have tried to take some of those other islands. That's a great what if. And it maneuver it very nicely maneuvers into the broader question because, okay, if we didn't invade Petalo, because what the way I typically present it when I'm being sassy to people that want to argue with me when we're on the island is that they'll say, well, you should never have invaded here. And I was like, okay, if we didn't invade Pillow, do you think we shouldn't have invaded Angar as well? I can see that sometimes they're like, oh yeah, that's right. We did that too. And they'll very almost immediately because they, they've already planted the flag and they feel like they have to defend it. They'll go, we shouldn't have done that either. And I was like, that then would have left the entirety of the Palau Island group unmolested during an extremely critical period in the Pacific War, the period of the latter months of 1944, that would carry us, by the way, up through the Leyte landings and then up through the Lingayan Gulf landings on Luzon. And I feel like if we had left Angar and Peleliu completely alone, and if we had just bombed the Palau Island group, I think that our overall objectives in the Pacific would have been compromised a lot more than they were. It would have been a far more difficult fight to liberate the Philippines uh, because Peleliu would have always been there. The airplanes based on Peleliu could have harassed us. Granted, they wouldn't have been able to do so forever because they were eventually cut off from gasoline. Um, but the submarines 
the submarines could have done a lot. Submarines were being used to supply island outposts. That, of course, that shut the supplies off to a trickle, but still they were being supplied. And that meant if we had done nothing to the entirety of the Palau Islands, that sub-base would have continued plugging along and there would have been Japanese air power on Peleliu and on Angar and on Nedibus and on Bebeguab. And I think that would have made 1944 and early ni- late 1944 and early 1945 a much more complicated thing than it eventually was. Trust me, it's, it's with no great joy that I, I advance this argument. Uh, because, as you know, we lose basically 1,800 people killed on this island in a battle that was supposed to take three days that took 73. We pay dearly for both islands. We pay a lot more dearly for Peleliu than we did for Angar. And we destroy the fighting strength of the 1st Marine Division in that battle. And at least to me, it looks like the investment paid an ultimate dividend, although it's a very oblique dividend to the big picture. I should mention that I remember having a, a, a spirited argument of this um, subject at one point with people who are named characters in this series where I had been on a trip. I was on a trip to Okinawa and R.V. Bergen was on the trip and I was quite close with R.V. Bergen until his death. I, I met most of these people, in fact, and I remember talking to him about it and he was not having a word of what I had to say. <laughs> and it's it, you just when you're when you're dealing f- with somebody like RV Bergen, um, you eventually just stop trying to make your points because I mean that is a person who bled and suffered on these islands and and that that's a perspective that deserves respect and I definitely respected that perspective and what I have enjoyed about the subject is this ongoing dialogue where just by by virtue of me being lucky and being the right place at the right the right person at the right place at the right time, I got involved in this and I got to meet these people and I got to be friendly with Sid Phillips and I got to be friendly with R.V. Bergen. And I had met Eugene Sledge before his death by complete coincidence just because I'm an Alabamian. And I enjoyed having the interaction with them over the Pacific War and learning about it from them and their personal uh, perspective. And I also enjoyed reconciling that with the intellectual thought of, hey, was this operation actually necessary? Have we considered everything? And I only hope that this is the kind of intellectual exploration of this subject that's going to continue in the future. I worry that it won't because the veterans are gone. Well, you mentioned the the airfield on Peleliu and in episode six of the series, that's really where we see the battle for the air airfield take place. And the Japanese defenses are strong. There's just not a lot of cover on the airfield. So a lot of men are killed trying to take it. Eventually, though, they do manage to take the airfield. How well did the show do portraying the actual battle for the airfield itself on Peleliu? The show did very well in depicting that because I've been on that airfield many, many times. I've taken people there who wanted to run the link from the beach area all the way to the headquarters, which is something that's well depicted in there. And the location that they chose matches the actual location so well that it, it would blow your mind. I should actually do some side-by-sides 
of photos I've taken at the actual location and still screen grabs from the series because they, they I mean, it looks perfect. It looks like Peleliu. And that, that I found to be an extremely thought provoking aspect of this. It was, that's one thing that I deeply respect about the series is that thought went into the selection of locations, just like it went into that with Saving Private Ryan and with Band of Brothers. And I often think about how, you know, this genre of the World War II movie, it was created before World War II was over. There were already movies being made while the war was still being fought. The one that I frequently reference, I should reference too, actually, is The, the Defense of Wake Island. And then um, Guadalcanal Diary was made during the war. And they filmed them on location in Southern California. And they didn't really have access to Japanese people. And so they used, they tended to use extras who were sometimes Hispanic. And the thought was because they're Hispanic, they will look more Asian, which is a little bit of a convoluted way of getting there. But that's the, that was the reality of film production during the war. And so it's fascinating to me to look at movies like that, even to extend beyond the end of the war and into the, the post-war time period, like Sands of Iwo Jima, for example, where they chose locations that they had to go with locations that were available to them. To look at those movies today, it's just, it causes you to recoil like, oh my God, that doesn't look, that looks like Ventura County. That looks like Southern California. That does not look like Tarawa. That does not look like Guadalcanal. That does not look like Wake Island. And that's one thing that makes me value and appreciate the efforts that went into Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, and HBO's series, The Pacific, because my God, they nailed the location for the Peleliu sequence. And it looks Stunning, absolutely stunning, even down to the point that the building that is supposed to represent the headquarters of the Japanese airfield on Peleliu, which was a building that was in ruin as a result of first bombing, then preliminary naval bombardment, and then combat action on the ground, that building looks just like the real one that's there. Uh, That's an accomplishment that I think they should be proud of in the series. The battle sequence, I think, is also something to be proud of. And one thing that I really admire about that sequence that for me at least sort of grabbed me by the by the shirt and yanked me into the experience was there's an interesting cast of characters that they're not named in this series but I think they are performers nevertheless. They make weapons cast members in a way because literally the heart of the entire story arc of Sid Phillips is that he's a mortar man and we meet him and we come to understand that weapon system quite a bit better as that weapon system is used in combat from Guadalcanal to Cape Gloucester to Peleliu to Okinawa. And I'm quite interested in that weapon. And I've shot all of the World War II weapons, particularly the ones that are depicted in the series, 60 millimeter mortar and the 81 millimeter mortar. And I appreciate that part of the series and that authenticity because there's a reality that we have to confront. And that is that World War II departs from the standard action movie reality. And the standard action movie reality is that everybody gets killed by small arms fire, by rifles, pistols, and submachine guns. And the reality is that overwhelmingly during World War II, it was artillery fire and mortar fire that did the killing. And I mean, overwhelmingly, 90% of the combat casualties are caused by those weapons. 
And the mortar, just from the experience that I have had firing 60 and 81 millimeter mortars, it's a chilling experience to shoot them because you realize there's nothing you can do. There's nowhere you, you can hide and just hope that it doesn't get you. And that's all you can do because the mortar doesn't care if it's day or night, doesn't care if it's raining or shining, doesn't care if it's snowing or if it's howling wind, doesn't care if it's blistering heat or chilling cold. The mortar always works. It's an excruciatingly accurate weapon system. And as long as you're operating within ranges and when you're on Peleliu, you are basically in range of all the mortar systems at all times. This Peleliu is not big. And that's one thing I appreciate about the series is that you're seeing the weapon system and how that weapon system is used in combat. And for the most part, movies just don't do that. But instead, we have named characters. We have speaking parts. And their job is their mortar men. Like there's a point in the Peleliu sequences where you see um, Romy Malik snafu. You see they set the 60 millimeter mortar up. He puts the, the sight on the weapon. He's sighting through the sight. And then they begin to deliver fire using the weapon. And then you see a Marine is killed. And he was the one that was in a little leather pouch over his shoulder. He was carrying the sight. And you see they have to leave his body and they take the sight off. And that's a powerful moment because without that sight, the weapon's useless. You also see how when the mortar team moves forward, the mortar team has to keep moving forward. You can't allow pieces of the team to separate because to allow them to separate is a guarantee that the system won't, you won't be able to fire with that weapon and you're just carrying around paperweights at that point. You have to have one man carrying the base plate, one man carrying the tube. You have to have men carrying the ammunition for the weapon and you have to have somebody carrying the sight. And when you have all of those pieces together, and the men are very skilled at fighting with that weapon. That's that's a terrifying weapon on the battlefield and a very, very deadly weapon on the battlefield. And I kind of respect the series because it makes the mortar team a central player. And I don't really know of another movie that does it. I say movie, a movie or miniseries that does it. You're also earlier... We saw the M1917A1 water-cooled machine gun, which is an extraordinarily effective weapon system that is used from the beginning of the war all the way to the end of the war. Why did they use it through to the end? Because it worked, and it worked great. That weapon system fights like a beast on Guadalcanal, which is very well depicted in the scenes that are relating to the Battle of Henderson Field and the Barcelona Medal of Honor action. And that weapon continues to fight all the way through to the end of the, of the war, and it was a fearsome weapon system that when well handled like by a crew and well led by somebody like John Bassalone, that thing could break the back of an enemy infantry attack. So it fascinated me because where else is that weapon system being depicted as being a powerful battlefield weapon? You just don't see it in other movies. Yeah, you see machine guns being used, but they're like sort of a sideline character. They're not depicted as being a starring character. And those sequences where Barcelona is mowing down this attack that it descends on his position, the, the weapon system is depicted, I think, accurately as being just as deadly as it actually was. And it was actually capable of a lot greater than what's depicted there. And so I kind of appreciate the fact that they're depicting these weapons. And it's, I mean, obviously, I'm interested in the, the weapons of war in addition to the history of the people that fought it. 
Um, but I feel like those weapons tell us a lot. They can inform a great deal of our understanding about why these battles were as costly as they were. Because if you fail to understand the mortar and what a fearsomely dangerous weapon that is, you're not really understanding how we can lose 1,800 people on a, a small island. Um, if you don't understand the machine gun, you don't understand. To, to read the John Bassalone Medal of Honor action uh, citation, to read it without having seen those scenes, to read the, the Medal of Honor citation in abstract, I don't know that you would really have the deepest appreciation for that Medal of Honor citation. But if you've seen the movie and then you read his actual citation, it all kind of comes together in a very effective way. And then also you get M1 carbine, M1 rifle, and the Thompson submachine gun. They're well depicted in this. And the, the lineup, the usual suspects of American infantry weapons in the Pacific, they're central characters through this whole drama. And all of them reach sort of this apex during the Peleliu sequences. And you see, see them all uh, in these Peleliu episodes and depicted in a way that I, I deeply appreciate, which is why I gushed about it so long just now. They seem to go out of their way to mention this during the battle for the airfield is just how the men didn't have any fresh water. They're all thirsty. It has to be extremely disheartening. There's one scene where they find water and then they find the Japanese poisoned it. it was that true? Absolutely true. And this was a major part of what limited our effectiveness during the fight for Pelu. And it also provides this brilliant meditation on logistics. Because what happens very often in abstract when we say things like Peleliu was only supposed to last three days. One experience I've had in leading tours on Peleliu is I've had people say, well, if it was, if they only thought it was going to last three days, how did they fight for 73? And I was like, well, I'll tell you how they did. They, they really had to stretch things and they really had to call in sort of an emergency to get through that long. And it basically caused a shuffling of everything that it, it was thought it would take to capture the island. So imagine this. I mean, the military didn't unnecessarily or wantonly or carelessly throw people into these battles. They very carefully thought out the supplies that would be necessary to achieve a victory. And if if your intelligence estimate was first Marine Division is going to knock this out in three days, you wouldn't just give them three days of water. You would give them much greater than that. You would give them because there's going to be obviously a mop-up time period in the aftermath of primary hostilities on the island. And so you would give them two, maybe three weeks of water to get a three-day job done. Well, that's all well and good until you're in the third week of a knockdown drag out battle and you don't have enough water. They began running short of water on Peleliu long before three weeks in, just for the record. And there is one mishap that occurs that brings on that shortage, and that is that you've seen military gas cans, and they will also have military water cans. And during the Second World War, they were very careful to mark what's potable water and what's gasoline. And the logistics of staging this major operation, moving, in, moving an entire Marine division to the Palau Island group to carry out the assault on Peleliu, they knew that their water needs were going to be higher because they understood well what the daytime temperatures during the autumn months were. They understood well that it's going to be over 100 degrees Fahrenheit every single day with, with, a, with a humidity level in the 80 percentage point. And so 
understanding that they were like, we're going to have high levels of water consumption. We better be prepared. It's just that when they prepared, they collected up additional water cans, but they had been used previously for gasoline. And so they scrubbed them to, with the hope that they could be then, that the, all of the gasoline residue and film would be out of them and they could be used to carry water. Uh, and to this day, we still don't know exactly what happened, but it's beyond question that they didn't scrub a lot of the cans out and then they put water in them. So that when the 1st Marine Division begins fighting on the island, they have cans that are delivered to the beach that are supposed to be containing potable water. But then when they're poured out into canteens, the men realize this is, ga- this is gasoline. We can't drink this. And it's because the cans have not been thoroughly rinsed and cleaned after having been used for gasoline. That's a logistics challenge that fascinates me because just imagine how broad the challenge was of providing everything that the, all of the Marines, the first Marine, all the Marines and sailors of the first Marine division are going to need to fight this battle. You have to provide not only the weapons of war and equipment, you have to provide their water and their food as well. And an attempt during war, during wartime conditions where basically everything is in shortage, you go out and you try to find um, containers for fresh drinkable water and you come up with things that at one point can, can contain gasoline and maybe you do the best you can to make them appropriate for carrying water and you have a mistake. And that mistake results in Marines fighting on Peleliu who don't have enough water. That situation was greatly compounded by the fact that then the battle stretches on far longer than was expected. In fact, by the end of by the end of the first week on the island, you may have read that the 1st Marine Division, in some regiments, they had experienced 70% casualties. And the result was that by the 20th of September, eh, 21st, 21st, 22nd, right in that area, about a week into the battle, the 1st Marine Division, it just doesn't have the strength that it needs to continue fighting. And by this point, they have overcome the Japanese positions on the beachhead, they have overrun the airfield and they're moving into a third phase. And that third phase was pushing into this central uplifted coral plateau that we call the Umarbrogel Massif. And as they begin moving into that, the attrition that the division has experienced up to that point has been so great. And attrition is partly combat men who have been wounded in action. It's partly men who just they experience heat exhaustion and a heat exhaustion casualty is a Marine who has to come off the line. You can't, you can't be man enough to toughen up and just get back in there and do it. Your, your body shuts down. Your body will not permit you to continue fighting. And so there are a large number of heat exhaustion casualties. And this is made all the worse by the fact that there's not enough water for everybody. And all that does is that means that men who are sort of like right on the edge of becoming a heat exhaustion casualty, they tumble over the edge because they don't help, they don't get water that would help hold that off. And so the result is that you've got such high casualties in the division that a decision is made that the army will be brought onto the island to supplement the 1st Marine Division in fighting off the Japanese garrison. Because by this stage of the battle, the Japanese have experienced, they've suffered heavy losses. 
but there are still by September 23rd or so, there's still a couple thousand Japanese on the island. And by this point, they're, they have moved into defensive positions in the Umerbrogel Hill Mass, an area that is broadly and generically referred to as Bloody Nose Ridge. And that's because it's not one ridge, but a series of ridges, a series of ridges and hills and knobs and coral badlands that are uplifted from that coastal plain where the runway, where the airfield was. That is an area where the enemy can, ex- can enjoy cover and concealment. The Japanese made extensive use of this hill complex as a defensive fortification so that in the months immediately leading up to this battle, the Japanese dig into the Umabrogal. There were positions in the Umabrogal and, um, and other um, hills further to the north on Pelalu that had been prepared much earlier in the war. And then a lot of digging took place at the beginning of 1944, after you, the Japanese see the Gilberts and the Marshalls fall, and then and eventually, of course, the Marianas. And so the Umerbrogel becomes basically one big fortress. And the Japanese um, make this shrewdly competent decision to, let's just pull back into this, let them come and get us, and we can sit here and inflict casualties on them in the meantime. There's a recognition overall among the Japanese defenders that every day that we make the Americans pay for this island is a day that we delay them. Every Marine or sailor or soldier we kill on this island is a Marine sailor or soldier who will not land on Kyushu or Honshu or Hokkaido. In other words, won't land in the home islands. And so the Japanese, they shift into this mindset of the defensive attritional battle. And in doing so, they have basically abdicated the idea of stopping the American force from capturing the island. And they have adopted instead this position of, we're going to make you pay. You're going to win anyway. And we know that. But we're going to kill as many of you as we possibly can before you can celebrate a victory. At what point you said they were going to be, they thought it was going to be three days. And obviously it was much longer than that. Did they have a, a supply line, uh, bringing more supplies in to uh, reinforce them, or did they basically have you know this couple weeks worth of water, and you had to stretch that out? Because I would imagine initially, when you first get there, you assume that the battle is going to be three days. You're not really going to be saving <laughs> water on an island that's near the equator like that. And that's a, a critical realization that um, that leadership has to make, and that is that. This is going to go on for a long time. We're not going to be able to complete this job with the supplies we brought with us. That sets in motion this sudden shifting of gears of we've suddenly got a crisis on our hands. And what we need to manage that crisis is more people, more ammunition, more water, more fuel, more air cover. And as they shift into this this crisis mode of supplies that were destined for other locations are rerouted to the Palau Island group to support the army battle on Angar and the, and then ultimately the army and Marine Corps battle on Peleliu. Because I keep neglecting to mention that during the first week of the battle of Peleliu, just six miles away, the battle of Angar has begun and ended. The army eventually overcomes the Japanese garrison on Angar, captures the island. This was the U.S. Army's 81st Infantry Division. 
supported by the 17th, 710th Tank Battalion. And I mentioned those units specifically because they will have to come and help on Peleliu. Because after all, the Marine Corps has this extremely difficult experience during the opening week. The Army ultimately moves over the 321st Infantry Regiment of the 81st Division. They land on the island on, what is that? That's on September 23rd. And almost as soon as the Army conducts its landings, the Army um, maneuvers around to the north of the Umerbrogel Hill Mass and cuts it off from the north so that the Umerbrogel complex, prior to the Army's landing, was being attacked by the Marines from the south. Then the Army lands, they seal it off. And then you've got this, this pocket that's 900 meters long and about 300 meters wide that's surrounded. And once it's surrounded, it will take five Marine and Army regiments the next eight weeks to conquer it. That's how rugged that terrain was. And five regiments for the Army and the Marine Corps, circa late 1944, one regiment's going to be somewhere between, let's say, 2,500 to maybe 3,500 men. These strength levels vary from unit to unit as a result of attrition and replacements and that sort of thing. But if you consider, let's just say on the conservative, that's uh, that's over 10,000 Marines, sailors, and soldiers who fight to secure something that's 800 meters long and 300 meters wide for two months. I mean, that really puts it in perspective. It really does. And that's why I, I mean, I've, I I know that there are a lot of other historians out there that have had the experience that I've had, and I think they would probably agree with the statement. And that is that once you hike up to the Umerbrogel complex on Peleliu, because they have a jungle trail now that takes you through sort of the main landmarks within Umerbrogel complex. Once you hike up through there and you come back out and and when you come down at the end of the trail to go get back in the van to go back to the hotel, all of us, we have all done the same thing and we all go, yep, I get it now. Because with carrying no equipment and nobody shooting at you, the Umerbrogel will whip your ass. Because it did that to me. The, my first day on Peleliu, during my first visit, I was a heat casualty. And that was in March, not in September. That was in the winter. Granted, the winter is not all that much colder than the summer is, but it's a difference of 20 degrees. So it was about 85, 86 degrees. So it's 20 degrees cooler than it would have been for the Marines and the Army when they were fighting the, the actual battle in September. But we landed, and as soon as we landed, we went straight to the beach to have a look at the beach. And when we got there, one of the members of our group wandered off. The biggest no-no on a tour group. And the problem with wandering off on Peleliu is that Peleliu has lots of these things called saltwater crocodiles. So when you wander off, people immediately think you have been taken by the saltwater crocodiles. And it's not a ridiculous conclusion. And so we launched into this panic and we were going to just make this quick visit to the beach, have a look at the beach. Awesome. We, we walked out on the point. We're going to have 30 minutes of like kind of looking around at the point and thinking about the first, the way that the battle unfolded there on the first day. Then we were going to go back to the hotel, clean up, have dinner and get ready for the next day. And instead we did a head count. Somebody was missing. And then we spent three hours looking for this guy. And during that three hours, I mean, if you've ever dealt with, heat exhaustion, you know, it's a stopwatch. 
once your body gets into the conditions where heat exhaustion will take over, you start the stopwatch and everyone's a little different. And when you run out of time, you are out of time and there's no amount of ice or water on planet Earth that will bring you back quicker. So I went down after about the second hour. And when I was down, I was down for the count. It was a full 20 hours before I could even stand up and walk around again. And that's with me laying down and like putting a cold rag on my forehead and then just guzzling water constantly. The irony of it was that when I went down as a heat casualty, the group leader was then like, oh, great. I've got real drama here. I've lost one person probably to a crocodile. And then this guy just passed out on me. And so he was like, when I, when I passed out, they were like, we got to go straight to the hotel and try to get him taken back. And so we broke off the search, loaded up in the van, drove up to the hotel. And when we pulled up, they were like carrying me to the, the room to throw me on the bed. And as, they, as we walked up, the guy that had been missing was sitting at the bar having a, a drink. And he's like, oh, hey, where are you guys been? Well, at, at least he wasn't taken by a crocodile. But, but. At least he wasn't taken by a crocodile. It's a silly story that's meant to call attention to the fact that when you're a few d- degrees off the equator, it ain't like being from New Orleans or from Mobile, Alabama, like Eugene Sledge was. We get hot here, and people from the South, we know heat, but that's different. That's so much, it's so much worse. It's a more fast acting heat than it is here. Because here, yeah, it's all and the humidity and the heat together, and you're getting direct sunlight in a way that you aren't, that we don't get it nearly as direct here. I'm at 30 degrees north here. I think Peleliu is at seven degrees off the equator, isn't it? Peleliu is just not that far off the equator. And I don't know how those, my God bless the men that fought that battle. Because the, those are some of the most challenging circumstances that I can imagine. And you, you, and they emerge in that battle in a way that they haven't before. You know, because on Guadalcanal, the, the environment was a challenge, but it just wasn't the same kind of challenge that it was on Peleliu. It's worth mentioning here because we haven't said it yet. And that is that the Japanese, who knew how to defend islands and knew how to fight us, they knew don't leave any open space. Don't allow bushes and um, trees. The, the Japanese had burned off everything. So the island was completely bald. That's what makes it so different today when you go to Peleliu because it's, you're in the jungle. And you tend to think of it, oh, this was a jungle battle. And it really, it, it kind of wasn't that. There were only a few patches of natural growth that had survived. The Japanese understood understood that they needed the best possible fields of fire, and so they they scoured the entire island before the operation began. And the result was that you're just you're being bombarded by this direct sunlight at the hottest time of the year on an island that has no shade anywhere, and you have to survive all of this with very very limited water. I couldn't do it. I mean, I I I lasted two hours on Jungle Peleliu. And nobody was shooting at me. Imagine being on a mortar team. The, now, a 60 millimeter mortar tube is not that heavy. The base plate's not that heavy. But the problem was that everyone in the crew had to carry ammunition. And if they're carrying the standard, the M40, M49A1 high explosive round, the more you can carry of that, the better. Because obviously, if you are carrying less ammunition forward with the weapon, that just means you're less dangerous. So you're carrying 
the elements, the, the components of the weapon system and you're carrying ammunition in addition to your own personal weapons. Because like the Sledge character, you really see it, I think, so well. That's why I know I'm back to this again, but you never get to see this really effective depiction of what a mortar team experienced in combat. And, and in this, you're seeing the mortar team moving forward, the men carrying the various components of the weapon system. And like you're seeing Sledge and he's carrying a component of the mortar in addition to his M1 carbine because he also has to have a personal defensive weapon with him at all times. And many of these men carried a carbine and a pistol. So you're carrying an, a personal defense weapon with the ammunition for that, in addition to components of the mortar system and ammunition for it. That's a lot to lug around on an island like that. Well, you mentioned Sledge. I wanted to ask you about another character that we had talked about in last episode, as, as well as a little bit earlier. In Episode six of the Pacific, we see Bob Lecky get injured and he's taken to a medical ship where Runner is also there. He's also injured. Basically, they're taken out of the fight. Can you give a little more historical context around what happened to Bob Lecky? Yeah, they were during the attack on the airfield. Lecky is hit by fragmentation from an explosion. And the fragments pepper him in such a way that he has to be evacuated. He was lucky in that when he got peppered, it was by smaller fragments. It was never clearly determined what it was. There was a belief that it might have been a Japanese mortar round or a Japanese hand grenade. A weapon the Japanese fought with that was extremely common on these islands was this weapon that was nicknamed the knee mortar. It's not knee like the knee, like that, that piece of your anatomy, but it's a, it comes from the Japanese name for the weapon system. And it was an individually portable and operated mortar. But it was not one where it fires by operation of the mortar round sliding down the tube. You would pull the pin on the round, put it in the tube, and then you had you actuated it to fire it. So there was a firing pin that set it off. And these little 50 millimeter mortar rounds are they're all over these battlefields today. Like I found 50 mil unexploded 50 millimeter knee mortar rounds on Pelalu. And so it could have been one of those that was um that explosion was set off by a picric acid charge and picric acid is a high explosive just like tnt is so it's extraordinarily dangerous it's just that they provided a light fragmentation effect they were point detonating light fragmentation the japanese type 97 hand grenade was an extraordinarily dangerous weapon but it was it produced light fragmentation if you were an adequate interval away from the weapon. It was it was survivable, and that's what Lecky experiences. So it was either a knee mortar round or a hand grenade round. Peppers him with fragments, and the problem with that kind of fragmentation wound is that even if the fragments that embedded themselves in your flesh, even if it's not life-threatening, if you give it any any measure of time, everything immediately becomes septic. I mean, I shouldn't say immediately everything very quickly becomes septic. And so the, the fragments have to get removed. The, the entire wound has to be sanitized and everything has to be sealed up. And so Lecky goes down from a fragmentation wound. And so he's out of the fight. And that's a critical detail because there's one of our main characters, a character who we have followed through thick and thin up to this point, And he's out of the story. I mean, he's not... He doesn't disappear from our story entirely at this point, but he's out of action. And I feel like by losing that, you know, the old joke about making TV is that when they kill off a main character, it's because they don't know what else to do. They didn't kill off Lecky, but Lecky's gone. And 
the reason that that became sort of an old TV cliche was because when you killed off a named character, a character that people had gotten to know and gotten to love, when you kill that character off, it has an effect on people. And it has this effect of getting people there. It, it has an effect of like tugging at their emotional involvement. And so that wasn't written into the script that actually happened in Lucky's life, but for him to be pulled out of it, that, that, that invites your emotional attachment to what's going on in the story. And isn't that really what's at the heart of this series? This series is, it's different than Band of Brothers was in so many ways, because this, this series is about the individual's experience in the Pacific War. And there is this extremely powerful tone in the series of the Pacific War had the effect of traumatizing. That's really what we're seeing. We're seeing the way that the Pacific War traumatized people. And I would challenge that this is not something that is a major theme or a central theme in Band of Brothers. We get a little bit of that in Band of Brothers, but we don't get it basically in every episode. And in this series, we get it in every episode, don't we? Kind of stepping away from some of the main characters, there was a scene I wanted to ask you about. It was near the end of episode six, and it's after the Marines take the airfield. Before they go into the hills, there's a Marine who just starts making a lot of noise one night. And making noise is dangerous because that's going to let the Japanese know where you're dug in, risks everybody's life. And so they try to get him to be quiet, just keeps yelling, swearing, you won't calm down. So another Marine grabs the closest thing he can find, it's a shovel, hits him with it. And the next morning we find that that Marine has been killed. The general consensus of everybody else is, well, better him than all of us. Did that really happen? That is certainly a story that was told. They've never identified exactly who that Marine was. And that is a little bit of a tale of oldest time because you, we've heard that about trench raiding in World War I. I remember that as a kid, there was this TV series called MASH. Maybe you've seen it. And, and MASH uh, used that vehicle as a means of expressing to people the high stakes of a combat environment. And in this scene, it's depicted as they've moved into positions around the airfield. It's nighttime. And the reality of the Battle of Peleliu was that at night, the enemy was a bit more active. The enemy would come out of cover a little bit more. And that nighttime was a very, very dangerous time. And that they, the Marines and the Army tended to, they would set up in nighttime positions and they put out, they put out their defenses. And they tended to not move a lot at night because the more you moved at night, if you moved at night, you tended to invite uh, friendly fire. And it's just because you can't move at night because you suddenly no longer have the ability to just stay in your lane. Um, you can very easily move into an area where a friendly unit is protecting it. You can unknowingly stumble into an area that's, that's covered by another friendly unit and you can draw their fire. So they tended to just move into static positions, set up their defenses and spend the night like that. And then they'd wait until dawn and then the, they'd begin pushing again. And so the result was that at night, men tended to try to sleep. You had to maintain a watch. But this was simultaneous to the fact that the enemy was raiding, that the area was periodically interrupted by the occasional like illumination round by some naval support from ships offshore and there was always sort of enough noise around that nobody could really the people that were not on 
not on guard, not on watch. They they could try to get some sleep, but very little bit, very little sleep could be had. And if there's one thing that we do know that the human experience in combat is one where, first of all, everyone's different, and some people can take it what seems like endlessly, and other people can only take it for a few days. So that you could have someone who joined the Marine Corps in World War II, completed Marine boot camp, somebody that was really tough, somebody that could hack it all the way through boot camp, no problem, somebody that might be able to hack it through one battle and then move to the second battle. And from the moment that you're under fire, the clock is ticking. And eventually somebody might just reach their limit. And I think that's what's being depicted here. This this person has, he's reached his limit that the stress of combat will eventually get to people when you add the further duress of physical privation, where you're sleep deprived, you're hungry, and then you're water deprived. That is all that's going to do is bring on that problem quicker. And the problem I'm referring to is that somebody reaches their limit. And so they are depicting that this, this Marine reached his limit that one night on Peleliu. And I could see why, because I can't imagine a more challenging situation to endure. And it took a special type of personality to sail through that sort of thing. Um, if there's one thing that the series does is it depicts these hardships. It depicts the way that the experience of combat pulls at even the toughest individual. And I tend to think that the series presents it in sort of a post-Vietnam way. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I am saying, though, that there's a heightened awareness of this reality that has existed since Vietnam that I think was that heightened awareness was largely promoted by movies like Platoon and that We tend to now expect that any war movie is going to depict as a part of that war movie, there's going to be some trauma in it. And we got a little bit of that that in Band of Brothers. But in Band of Brothers, we are not confronted in almost every scene like we are in this series. We're not confronted with people are reaching their limit. Everything here is very challenging and very trying. Um, I think what that does is... I think it's what it does is overall not a great thing because what it does is it allows this mythology to exist that the European war did not push people to their limit because it most certainly did that. The Pacific war did it. And I don't know that it's productive for us to argue about which one did it faster or more effectively. But the reality here is that people would reach their limit in combat. This is depicted in this scene as this ongoing tableau, which I think is at the the heart of this series, because the heart of this series is to call attention to the traumatizing experience of combat. It's meant to say, look at the hell that these men went through, and then they came home from it. And I knew not all, but many of these men, and I don't deny that they probably were traumatized. I I was raised by somebody who was a combat veteran who was traumatized by it, and the only time you would see the trauma was by enjoying the perspective of the intimate, of being the person who was in the household around them at their best, at their worst, around them constantly. Only then would you see it that these people who were traumatized by the experience of combat, they could live out their lives and they weren't quivering and weeping shells of humanity that 
combat traumatized them, yes, and that combat might have taken them to that point of shivering and barely able to hang on. But there was also a capability of resilience in them that I think is, it's certainly my note, I think my experience with them is noteworthy in that I knew many of these men and knew them to be charming and knew them to be fun. And I knew them to tell dark stories and, and to tell funny stories and to tell, you know, naughty stories sometime. I knew that about them. And I knew then that they could also turn on the dark side and tell you about things that happened. And that, yeah, they experienced it. And yes, it stayed with them in a lasting way. But there was, I think, an element of American manhood that these men also took it in stride. I think the series calls this idea of trauma to the center. And I think it's a little bit out of proportion for the reality of what these men were, because these were extremely tough people. And that toughness emerges in their experience in combat. And then that toughness emerges again, I believe, in the years after the war when they had to make a life where they were around people who had not gone through the same thing. They had to learn to live with and work with people who had not been through the hardships that they had been through. And my experience of being around some of the men that are depicted as named characters in this series. And then like my experience of being raised around my father was one in which I felt like sometimes the thing that that was almost a third level of navigating trauma that the level one was surviving it to begin with level two was then going home and being normal. And that the third level was that people were always kind of, badgering them and asking them about it and that it might not be something that they wanted to recall, let alone talk about. And yet they were constantly being called on to talk about it and to drag all that out in the open again. And I think the three elements of that made these, um, these men emotionally very tough people. I was particularly close with RV Bergen and Sid Phillips and both of those men could be like the most impossibly charming gentlemen you've ever met in your life. And then they would tell me stories that would, you know, make you curl your toes. They were terrifying stories. And all of that resided in one person. And it made them very complex in a way that continues to fascinate me. And so I do not doubt they were traumatized by their experience during the war. But it didn't destroy them. Well, if we head back to the show on episode seven, this is taking Peleliu Hills in October of 1944. Uh, we see Captain Andrew Haldane's men are heading up into the hills and Colonel Polar's men are coming out of the hills. And as they pass, Polar says, you're up, boys. I wanted to ask you about this this kind of strategy, this tactic. It seems like the men are just cycling in and out. There's a group of men that go out and then a group of men that go into replace them. So there's always this, this fighting going on. Was that kind of the strategy that, that they had? That was the only way to fight a battle like this. And that, and what that was, was th that when a unit was fully armed, it was at its peak staffing, meaning that it was, it was filled out with enough people to do all of the jobs. And I like to point out to it is that like, when you consider a Marine rifle company in combat in the Pacific, there are, Riflemen in that rifle company, yes, but there are also a lot of people in that company that do very specialized jobs. You have people that are 
machine gunners, you have mortar operators, you have radio operators, you have the U.S. Navy sailors who are medical corpsmen that are assigned to that rifle company. You have a lot of people that are doing a lot of things other than just shooting rifles at the enemy. And if you lose one element of that, that makes the company that much weaker. So that if you, for example, if the company goes on the line, the company's in, in combat and uh, one machine gun section is the men are all killed by the enemy. That's one less machine gun you have. So the company suddenly got a little bit less dangerous. And the experience of combat as it goes by, you'll have people that are wounded in action. They come off the line the way that Lecky was wounded in action and came off the line. You'll have people that, I mean, it's Peleliu after all. So you're going to have people that go down to, as heat casualties. And when they go down as heat casualties, they're off the line. And let's just say you have some, you have unfortunately some men killed in action. So that at the end of a day of intense combat operations on Peleliu, for example, you can have an infantry company that starts the day at full strength. And by the end of the day, they are at, you know, three quarters strength. They lost 25% of their strength in one day of combat. They can operate another day. They're a little short staffed at that point, but they're still capable of operating so long as you can keep ammo and food and water coming to them. Uh, but then let's say at the end of the second day, that strength has been reduced now to 50%. Yeah, there's still an identifiable infantry company there. And if, so long as you have all your machine gun sections and your mortar section and your, you have enough medical corpsmen and you have enough radio operators, you can still take that company and make it fight like a company, even though it's at half strength. But once you get below 50%, it's no longer productive. By once that, I mean, I think it would happen actually even a little sooner than that. But eventually, you'll lose enough of the specialized people and the overall strength that the the entire company needs to come off of the line. You need to either replace personnel that are permanently lost or let the ones that were just lightly wounded recuperate, get patched up and come back on the line. And that's why it was necessary that when you fed one company up, it was it could only stay on the line for a certain duration under a very kinetic combat experience like the, the combat experience that Peleliu presented. And so you had this rotational system by which you would put a company on the line. It couldn't stay up there. It wouldn't just stay up there endlessly until the last man was killed. It would stay up there and to accept casualties to a reasonable degree. Then it would come off the line to resupply and reinforce. And just for the record, the way that the Marine Corps would conduct an attack was that you had a regiment. Regiments were composed of three battalions. And within a battalion, you tended to have three, sometimes four companies. And the way that a battalion would conduct an attack was that it would, it would be given an objective, move up to and attack this hill. You would attack with two companies and then maintain one company in reserve. Meaning the third company is, it's ready to go into action, but it's not in action. But the two line companies, they're in action and they're sustaining casualties. And if one company sustains greater casualties than the other, they can pull that company off the line, replace it with the reserve company, and suddenly you're back to a higher level of fighting strength. That means that as with that system in place, in other words, using the reserve company to replace losses, you can, with one battalion, and a battalion being about 500 men, you can attack an objective uh, for a day or two within the Peleliu battle, with a, within a day, two, three, you're, so long as you're not sustaining extremely heavy casualties, 
the, that battalion can remain in the attack on that objective. Once you've depleted the strength of your two attacking companies and your reserve companies, the entire battalion has to rotate off the line so that it can resupply and reinforce. And that's why it, it looks like it, it takes on this appearance of being this soulless meat grinder, doesn't it? It kind of ends up looking like we're just sending the lambs off to the slaughter. And that's not really what's going on. Uh, when you when you understand the way that the military operates, when you understand it a little bit more clearly, you understand that it's while it might look like that to the outside observer. And I think there are moments where this series certainly likes to let that dangle out there where it sort of looks like the never ending Vietnam movie cliche where all Vietnam movie cliches are. It's just a meat grinder and we're all being run through it until we're all dead. It's, and that the government doesn't care and the military doesn't care. I'm making this assertion, this argument that the era of Vietnam movies as a genre, that that era is an era that is heavily defined by deep disenchantment, deep condescension. And I'm not entirely sure that that applies to Vietnam. And I'm pretty sure it does not apply to World War II. Yes, Peleliu was the heart of darkness for the men that fought there. And yes, they went through an absolute hell on that island. But I'm not entirely convinced that it crushed their souls as thoroughly as we're being given. Because none of these men went into these battles and felt deep senses of surprise. These men knew what they had signed up for. They knew what they were going to get. And they were all at the peak physical condition of their youth. They were already tough having gone through basic training and survived the previous battle. And so there were no, there were no big secrets. At that point, it was a matter of whether or not you could physically endure it. And that physical endurance was tested by the water. It was tested by the heat. And it was as depicted in the, the, the scene you referenced a few minutes ago, it was a question of whether or not you could psychologically deal with it because the cumulative effect of this, this of combat, as it has been explained to me, is a lot like some people, like think of it as my water bottle here. And some people, they have a bottle that's much bigger than others and that the experience of combat is pouring water into that bottle eventually your bottle will fill up. Some people, they'll go through it and their bottle doesn't even get halfway. Like I know a person who spent eight years consecutively in Vietnam and he went home because they made him. That is a man who had a very big bottle <laughs> and, it, and he was not in a support unit. He was in a combat arms unit. He was actually a MACV SOG. He was a he was involved in a lot of combat and I know him very well. And I know the man too. When they made him go home from Vietnam, he was ready for more and he could have handled it and he could have handled everything. And then I know people that go, I have known people who went through basic training and were tough guys, tough people who then got into combat and um, they didn't do well. And it's, that's the, that's the mystery of the way that the human mind responds to combat because not everybody can take it. Peleliu had the effect of drawing weakness out of everybody so that if there were people who had a smaller model than others, Peleliu revealed it just because the, the conditions of that battle were very, very trying for these individuals. And it was also a battle that, at least for the 1st Marine Division, it went on and it got worse. I mean, 
the series has periodized the Peleliu battle in the perfect way because there are three distinct phases to the battle, and that's phase one, beach landing, phase two, airfield, phase three, Umerbrogel. It's just that Umerbrogel, that phase, is a, a phase that lasts for two months. And that's a hell of a lot of chances to push people to their limits during that two months of fighting. I mean, a lot of tough cookies were pushed to the limit by phase one, by just the beach phase, the first couple of days of the battle. And there are people that are, they reach their limit during phase two, during airfield part. Now, the Marine, the Marines, the first Marine Division, they are eventually pulled off the line during the battle entirely in the Army the army takes over and runs through to the end of combat operations on the island. And just for the record, when I say the end of combat operations on an island during the Pacific War, that doesn't mean until the last guy comes out, because in some cases that can go on for years and years and years. And famously on Guam and in the Philippines, there were men that didn't come out for 27 and 28 years after the war. That's another subject entirely. But when I indicate the end of the battle, I indicate the, the end of main combat operations. And for the Peleliu battle, main hostilities continue through to November 27th. There was an earlier uh, ceremony to acknowledge the battle's you know, primary combat operations have, have terminated, uh, but they weren't done yet because the Japanese were still holding the pocket. You still had Japanese army soldiers that were in this pocket that we call the Umerbrogel pocket, and they remained in it uh, until the end of December, or the end of November which is when Colonel Nakagawa, who was commanding the Japanese regiment on the Peleliu, he burned the regimental colors and then he committed ritual seppuku. And it's after that, that then his last command post, it was overrun. That traditionally marks the end of the Battle of Peleliu, a battle that was supposed to have ended on September 18th and instead it ended on November 27th. You mentioned there are three phases, and that last one took a, a few months. How long were the other phases? And like from the beach being one phase, and then the airfield being another, and then the the hills. Beach phase is really two days, and you can stretch a little bit into a third day. And then airfield phase is third day, um, the eighteenth, up until the big uh, approach to the Umerbrogel, which is only three days later. Then it, it becomes a matter of where you draw the line for periodizing the barrier between second and third phase. Because do you draw it at the point, at, do you draw that barrier as September 23rd, the point at which the army lands and begins fighting as a part of the battle? Uh, it, that might be a good place to begin the third phase because the army lands and they land, um, they land on the other side of the island and they land further up the coast and they cut off, they find a trail, and they cut off the Umabrogal pocket. And so that, to me, is a pretty decent time to begin the third phase. But a point I need to make quickly about the third phase is uh, I feel that the, the series, the series can't do everything. I realize that. I recognize that. But the series definitely does not do a good job of identifying this, the reality of this ongoing threat. The series flirts with it, but doesn't have any exposition that deals with it. And that there's this famous scene at the so-called sledge bunker. And I think you know the scene I'm talking about where they're attacking this concrete position, fighting position. That's not even on Peleliu. There was a counter landing against this island, Nedibus. And it's the island that's immediately north of Peleliu with a channel between the two that's only about 800 yards wide. Well, 
Netibus had a Japanese fighter airfield on it. So an airfield, but smaller than the big medium bomber airfield on Peleliu. And the fighter airfield was, it had defensive positions built on it. And there was a big problem with Netibus. And that is that Netibus was sort of an open door. Because keep in mind that north of Peleliu was another 338 islands. And some of those islands had a lot of Japanese troops on them, particularly the island of Babelglob, way up in the north. Something that begins happening after the Marines land is that the Japanese can use what we call interior lines, meaning that the Japanese own, owned all of the islands north of Peleliu. And the Japanese could, at night, when our air power could do nothing to stop them, they could move people down through the rock islands in protected water where our Navy wasn't patrolling. They could move them all the way down to Netibus, and then they could just move them right across this little channel to Peleliu. And they could conceivably, on a daily basis, reinforce Peleliu the way that Guadalcanal was being reinforced almost every day by the Tokyo Express two years earlier. And so there was a recognition for the fact that we had to close that door. And so we eventually conduct, they have the Marines conduct this landing. They have K-35, K Company, 35th Marines. K Company goes up and lands at Netibus as a means of clearing that island so that the Japanese can no longer use it as a means of circulating reinforcements onto Peleliu. And so I wanted to mention it, and that's because the series goes there and depicts that, and this, this sledge bunker incident happens on that island. That just goes to show you, I think, that when Peleliu stretches beyond the third day, when it stretches into a week, and then when it stretches into the long, slow third phase of the battle, there was no foregone conclusion of how the story would end. There were a whole hell of a lot of Japanese troops up in the northern part of that island group that could have moved through interior lines all the way back to Netibus and then moved over to Peleliu itself. There used to be a causeway connecting Peleliu and Netibus, but that causeway was destroyed right before the invasion. Still, they could have gotten people onto the island, and they, we believe that they did get some people onto the island using this method. And the reason that I wanted to mention it is that as U.S. forces, even after the Army, after the 81st Division has landed, when we looked north toward Netibus, it was looking toward, to use an expression, Indian territory. Because there were over 30,000 Japanese north of there. And that greatly outnumbered the Americans who were fighting on Peleliu from the Marine Corps, from the Army, and from the Navy. And so there was a significant concern about there's more of them up there than there are of us here. And we have to do what we can to prevent them from getting here. And we were doing that by bombing the Northern Islands. Where we had ships that were shelling them. And then K-35 is sent on this landing on Netibus to deny the Japanese the use of that island for this open door. I mean, a telling thing is that when you land at Peleliu today, you pull into that channel between Netibus and the, the sort of the northern end of Peleliu. You land there, and right where you land, first of all, there's this thing that's called the Thousand Manned Cave. The name is really self-explanatory. It's a cave that's big enough to accommodate maybe a thousand people. It would be very cramped, but you can do it. And then right next to it is a bunker that was built by U.S. Navy Seabees looking north toward Netibus during the third phase. And it's because we didn't know they were going to come across that channel from Netibus to Peleliu. We wanted to have 
a, a hardened fighting position to hold them off. And then after combat operations have terminated on Peleliu in late December, think about it. Then you're in December, late November. Then you move into December 1944. There's nine more months of war left. And there's 30,000 of them just up, just a few miles away. Karora is 28 miles away. Bebeldwab is 30 miles away. That's too close for comfort. We were scared to death that all they were going to, all it was going to take them was putting together a really good, well thought out, well armed counterattack. And they could sweep down there. They might not necessarily push us back into the sea, but they could greatly, they could have broken through to the Umabrogal pocket and relieved and reinforced Colonel Nakagawa's force until that. That door closed when Nakagawa committed seppuku on November 27th and the battle ended. But still, I think all of these factors are so important in grasping the essence of this battle because this was not a battle begins day one, battle ends day 73. It was not that simple. This matter could have easily gone in a different direction at any point during the 73 days of combat operations and then at any point during the nine months that followed it. And I feel like that's a critical thing for us all to understand and respect about what happened. And not just on Peleliu, but also on Angar and on Nedibus during this battle. Yeah, that's something that what you were talking about earlier, where they decided to bypass some of the other islands. Um, even, even doing that, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to, you, you can let your guard down. That's just it. They remain there, and as long as they're there, they remain dangerous. And that's why I, I have a little bit of a differing opinion than most people about, was Peleliu necessary? Well, Peleliu was only one of um, multiple battles for Palau, and I think it was necessary because, if anything, we kept that, that very large garrison pinned down, and we bypassed them when we could, and we sucked a lot of strength and operating freedom away from the submarine base. We took away basically all of the air power in the Palau Island group. That air power would have survived if we had not conducted these landings. And that air power, even if we haven't landed on Mindanao, that air power could still be dangerous. They could have still put together something. It wouldn't have been dangerous forever, but it still would have been dangerous. And when people offer up this idea of, well, we should have just bypassed it of the argument I immediately throw at them is like, we bypassed a lot. We bypassed island after island after island, and we bypassed everything north of Nidibus. And it's because we had to pick our battles wisely. We had to pick the battles that were going to make the most sense because the Japanese Oceanic Empire that was elaborated in the 1941-1942 time period was big, and we couldn't take it all. Just as an example, the island Ponape in Micronesia, it had a garrison of 32,000 men on it, and it had a tank battalion on it. And we never – have you ever heard about Ponape? Nobody ever talks about Ponape because there was never a battle there. And there was not a battle there, and that's because we went, oh, hell no, we're not doing that. And by that same to token, we never conduct an amphibious landing at Rabal. We never conduct amphibious landings in Truk. There are several islands in the – several other islands in the Carolines that we never attack. There are islands all over the Pacific that we bypass. And when it came to the Palau Island group, we chose three because we realized all we really need to do is tie them down and deny them air power. 
And to do that, we had to take Peleliu because that was the biggest and therefore the most powerful and therefore the most dangerous of the airfields in all of the Palau Island group. Angar was right there. We knew we had to take it anyway, just because we couldn't leave a garrison that would be potentially dangerous to us just six miles away on Peleliu. And then we ended up taking Nedibus just because it was right there as well. And so out of 340 islands, we seized three. And uh, by seizing those three, we denied the Japanese a lot of the strength that would have remained unmolested and therefore unfettered in the Palau Island groups during what was becoming then the critical ending months of the Second World War. Well, if you head back to the show in episode seven, around here is where I noticed a big difference between the Pacific and Band of Brothers. And we've talked a little bit, kind of comparing some there, but uh, Band of Brothers, episode two, we see some German soldiers as prisoners. Spears ends up killing them all, but not before Malarkey sits down, has a conversation. One of the Germans is from Eugene, Oregon, and it humanizes the German soldiers. In the Pacific, we never really see the Japanese up close for most of the series. The Marines don't take prisoners. When the Japanese do attack, their method of attack tends to be more of a guerrilla style. Uh, everything is all quiet, and then all of a sudden, there's just massive surprise attack, You know, ambushes, things like that. So I got the sense from the series that the Japanese were this faceless enemy just waiting to ambush at any given moment. Is there any truth to these differences in how the shows, the Pacific and Band of Brothers, portray the Germans and Japanese differently? Yes, there is. You've identified the critical difference, and that is that there was a Eurocentric cultural relativism that existed about our German and Italian enemies. because. Let's face it, the United States was packed from top to bottom with German and Italian immigrants. So when we fight Germany and Italy, and Italy during World War II, there's a cultural reality there. There's a cultural similarity. And there are people that speak the native languages, lots of them, actually. I'm not saying that the United States didn't have a strong Japanese-American culture, but there, because the United States had, in certain areas, very large populations of Americans of Japanese ancestry. We're well aware of this on the U.S. West Coast, well aware of this in the territory of the Hawaiian Islands. However, there was less of a powerful cultural connection between the two. That meant there were fewer Americans who were capable of reading and speaking the Japanese language, which I think pulls us into this more of a remote reality where there's an exoticism where they they seem foreign and they seem dis- different because you could be born and raised in the United States and never know anybody who was an American of Japanese ancestry. But let's face it, I think that's still kind of a, a, a large part of the American experience even today, where we had a broader experience with Americans of Chinese ancestry than we did Americans of Japan- Japanese ancestry. Um, that's not to say that it didn't exist. It just wasn't as big. In addition to that, the Japanese, the way that the Japanese eventually have to fight the Pacific War is by fighting protracted campaigns of attrition. And by fighting like that, you're experiencing less of maneuver elements on a battlefield and more of people in prepared defensive positions fighting off an attacking maneuvering force. And that isn't a way to develop strong personalities in combat with your enemy. That's not a way of encountering them very often. There's also another factor that I should mention in that 
we mentioned this last time, very few Japanese troops surrender to American forces during the Second World War. And that is for a number of reasons. And principal among those reasons was that Japanese troops were told that um, they should not expect quarter from Americans so that, you know, if they if you allow yourself to be captured, they're not going to treat you well. And by that same token, we understood that if our troops were captured by the Japanese, they wouldn't be well treated. I would call everyone's attention to the fact that there were a series of conventions, both the Hague Convention and a series of conventions that were signed in Geneva, the famous Geneva Conventions, that govern the way that countries fight one another. And that particularly within those conventions that govern the way that prisoners of war were treated, it's definitely worth mentioning that the United States had signed those treaties, as had the German and Italian governments. The overall experience of Americans captured by Germans during the Second World War, overwhelmingly, Americans are well-fed, well-cared for, and returned home. Overwhelmingly. 95% of the Americans who are captured by Nazi Germany during World War II, they survived the experience of captivity. 95% of the Americans captured by the Japanese do not survive. So it's an inverse. And a point that I, I know I have to remind myself to remember is that the Japanese felt no obligation to maintain prisoners because the Japanese had not signed any of these conventions. And so the Japanese were not expecting to maintain prisoners and they weren't obligated to maintain prisoners. Many people have spent a great deal of time writing about and attempting to understand what it was about the Japanese fighting spirit that made for people who would not surrender. I think that an important part of this is to understand that they were told, listen, there's no treaty between us and them. If they capture you, they're just going to kill you. I feel like that's a significantly important factor here. Many people will point to this vague and nebulous idea of Bushido, the idea that there was a Japanese warrior spirit and a Japanese warrior code that made everyone fight to the death. And while I don't deny that it existed, and I don't deny that you had that certainly among professional soldiers and high-ranking officers, the reality was that the Japanese military was a citizen-soldier military. Not everybody was a samurai. Not everyone was raised learning the martial art of how to fight with the samurai sword. Most people were born as fishermen or farmers or craftsmen. Most people were not, like I said, they were not born into a warrior class. That is something that was fading very quickly as a, as a central element of the Japanese cultural experience. And so the result was that a very large number of Japanese people who were conscripted into uniform during the Second World War, I don't believe that they were fighting by being animated by this idea of Bushido and a samurai code from a bygone century. I believe what they were animated by more than anything was a sense of, I have to stop these people before they invade the home islands where my wife and my children live. I don't I, I don't think it would be fair for us to, to deny them of that, to deny that to them. That animated the way they fought, just like a sense of vengeance animated the way that we fought, vengeance for Pearl Harbor. And I think that this, this sense of I have to stop these people, and if, if I surrender, I haven't done my job. I haven't done my job of, of 
sacrificing everything I can to prevent these Americans from invading the home island. Because everybody knew how this story was about to end. There was no doubt about it. Certainly by Peleliu, there's no doubt that this ends with an invasion of the Japanese home islands. And that these the men on these island outposts, they realize that, hey, here I am in the Palau Island group, but hey, I'm the front line protecting Kyushu. Um, I'm the front line protecting hearth and home back on Honshu. And I believe that had the effect of animating them. When that combines with the fact that they had assumed this attritional defensive type of warfare, what you end up with is an enemy that you very rarely see. In fact, we're not talking about Iwo Jima today, but in the Iwo Jima battle, many of the survivors will indicate that I never saw a Japanese soldier the whole time. I was under, I was in combat the whole time and I never saw an enemy soldier. And that's because of the way that the enemy was fighting was from prepared defense positions, which is an extremely intelligent way of fighting. And those prepared defensive positions function as a force multiplier where one man with a rifle out in the open, he can't do much to stop an American infantry platoon, be it army or Marine Corps. But one man with a rifle and a concrete fighting position, he can actually do something pretty meaningful to an infantry platoon. He's not, he might not kill them all, but he's going to kill several of them. And so the prepared fighting position um, amplifies his ability to fight. And so the Japanese are using that method of fighting more and more. They have moments where they roll back to the old method, which is where they want to engage in maneuver warfare. I find sometimes in a really disturbing way that sometimes Americans will trivialize that the Japanese way of war that rewarded them handsomely back between 1937 and 1942. During that five-year time period, being aggressive on the battlefield, engaging in maneuver warfare, that rewarded them over and over and over again. After 1942, it's no longer really rewarding them much because that aggressive maneuver warfare, it results in a lot of dead people and you lose a lot of your strength. And if you, if you suddenly have to shift gears and become much more conservative about how you fight, you're going to abandon the old aggressive maneuver warfare tactics and you're going to assume the individual attritional defensive warfare tactics, which is what this Japan is doing more. Granted, there are departures. They will depart from that. They'll, they depart from that during the, the battle on Peleliu, where there are a couple of, we tend to call them bonsai attacks. I kind of hate to call them that because I think that even, that even calling it that invites the wrong attention to it. I believe that when we call it a bonsai attack, it imagines them being the F word, which is fanatical. And I don't think you can say that aggressive maneuver tactics on a battlefield are fanatical because the American military did that during the war. Sometimes it paid off. Sometimes it didn't. That's why I, I'm never going to call American troops fanatical. And I don't want to call Japanese troops fanatical. It's just that they had elements within their military that some elements who had the more sober appraisal of what modern war looked like and what it looked like was prepared defensive positions and attritional warfare. Slow them down as much as you can. And there were still a couple of old holdouts that imagined a world where Japan would once again engage in aggressive maneuver tactics and win the day. Um, and there was a little bit of a struggle. We will certainly have a broader conversation about that next week when we talk about the mother of all battles, Okinawa. Uh, but 
I, I hesitate to call attention to the bonsai charge um, idea because the words bonsai charge tend to suggest that the Japanese were somehow foolish, stupid, and I hate to even say it, fanatical because they weren't. What they looked like to me was a military that started a war and then ended up with something that they hadn't bargained for. They started a war where they were, let's face it, they were kicking everybody's ass there for the first few years. And the way they were doing that was through aggressive maneuver warfare. Then things changed and it was no longer rewarding to engaging in aggressive maneuver warfare. And the, the more appropriate way of fighting was to fight from your prepared positions and to stay there until you were killed. And let's face it, people don't often want to do that. People want to take control of their circumstances. And despite that, despite that, you have Japanese people who you have Japanese troops during the war who in some cases are led by officers that want to return to the good old days of 1939 and 1940, where they get aggressive and they maneuver around the enemy and they use the things that were taught them at the academy and they, they defeat the enemy. And let's face it, that kind of that kind of leadership that boosts morale. People can get fired up about that kind of leadership. What they can't get fired up about is what we need you to do is to stay here and fight and kill seven Americans. And only after you've done that, then you can die. It's a little bit more challenging to to animate someone's morale under circumstances like that. And let's face it, those are the circumstances that identify and characterize the war that Japan is fighting from the end of 1943 until hostilities end in September 1945. And that type of fighting is one where you're very rarely going to see them. What you might see is what ends up in all the newsreel footage and all the photographs. You'll, you might see dead Japanese bodies. And it's a Japanese military that has been told over and over again don't surrender because if you surrender, they have they're they're just going to kill you. You can't surrender because after all, what's our, our what's our decided strategic path at this point? Attritional warfare, where everyone has an obligation to kill this many Americans, and these factors all roll together to mean that the Marines that fight on Peleliu, they're not really seeing Japanese much. You get this one scene. I think you're leading into that one scene where they're walking by and there's a Japanese. There's some Japanese prisoners and there's this. There's this interaction between them and some racialized slurs are tossed out. And there's a moment of tension. And that scene makes me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> and it makes me feel uncomfortable because when I started graduate school, it was, well, really when I was an undergraduate history major and then when I was working on my master's degree in history, it was during this era where we were having a conversation about racism and the war in the Pacific. And a number of books were introduced during that, one of which was John Dower's book, War Without Mercy. And War Without Mercy was a book that I had to read and review for school multiple times. And it was a book that I never really became very fond of. And it was because it, it did something that I felt was a reductionist view of the war in the Pacific, where it reduced everything in the war of the Pacific to racism. The Japanese were racist and the Americans were racist. They were both sides were racist against one another. And I believe that shorts that short changes a very complicated subject. And that's why that that little interaction with this prisoner makes me feel slightly uncomfortable because I'm kind of like, oh, here we go again. We're going to drag the John Dower book back out and have another talk about race when very clearly what it looks like to me was that 
the racism that is a part of the Pacific War, and I'm not denying that there wasn't racism because there definitely was racism, but I believe that that racism was occasioned by the circumstances of the war. People will then quickly say, well, we you racialized them and depicted them as monkeys. And I, was, and I will quickly argue that, yes, and we did that to the Spanish in 1898. And we did that to the Germans in 1917. And then we did it to the Japanese in 1941. That is clearly a trope that we turned to whenever we depicted people as being the other and being the enemy. We did it to the Spanish, the Germans, and the Japanese. And I'm not... I'm not convinced even to this day, because trust me, I spent a lot of time thinking about the Pacific War and reading about the Pacific War. I've spent sort of a lifetime on it. I feel my more of a Pacific War specialist than anything. And I, I'm not convinced that, that, that racism alone explains this very complicated situation. And the fact that the Japanese, by Peleliu, were fighting this attritional warfare where you didn't see them, that had the effect of making them seem more exotic in a way. And I could see how that would easily set the table for people to reach racialized conclusions. But I don't think that's what happened. I think that, that, that the reason that these Marines were just not seeing them much was because you're getting late war Japan that where every battle is an, attri an attritional defensive battle. People are not coming out of their defensive positions because at this point they have officer leadership that's telling them, don't do that. Don't conduct a, a bayonet charge because all that does is squander strength. We're not here to talk about the Saipan battle because, as you've already heard me moan, Saipan was not depicted in the HBO series, even though I wanted it to be. The Saipan battle wasn't depicted. And there's the largest bonsai bayonet charge of the world that Japan has, has fought then and there. And Everyone was critical of that. The Japanese high command was very critical of the fact like, there we go again, wasting, squandering the strength. All of the men that we lost in that one big bayonet charge, we could have, they could have made that battle last two more weeks. We will see this importantly when we talk next week about Okinawa, because Okinawa is at first an attritional battle where they are bleeding us to death over from one valley to the next, from one hill to the next. And then they get off that horse midstream and decide to conduct a big overall bonsai of offensive maneuver operation that squanders 20,000 people and shortens the Okinawa campaign probably by a month. Which And shortening Okinawa, who does that help? That helps us. That doesn't help them. And so I think that's why the, the Japanese have become this sort of faceless, nameless, faceless, exoticized enemy. And I can see how that looks so much different than the German or Italian enemy. And I can see how people who have spent a little bit less time understanding the Pacific War and all of its complexity, I can see how they can rush toward the old racialized theories that were so popular in the 80s and 90s, theories that have largely been undermined by more by contemporary scholarship. But you could look at those differences and go, like, why is it that um, American prisoners were respected by the Germans and taken care of by the Germans, but American prisoners held by the Japanese were brutalized? Well, because the Japanese had no obligation to take care of our prisoners. They had signed no agreement. And that's also kind of not how they understood what warfare was. And they understood warfare to be total warfare. And total warfare was you used the enemy's prisoners of war for forced labor, and then if they were no longer useful to them, you got rid of them. 
it's cold, it's dark, and that's the way it was. Well, on the American side, in episode seven of the Pacific, there's a major blow that gets dealt in the span of just a few days. First Lieutenant Edward Jones, Captain Andrew Haldane are killed. And then we see Sergeant Elmo Haney, or Gunny as he's he's called, he reaches his breaking point because of this. He was the rock for, for so long, and then he reaches his breaking point there. All of a sudden, it just seems like the leadership is gone. Did it really happen that fast like we see in the show? It did. And that, that was Peleliu. Peleliu did that because for reasons we've already discussed, this is a battle that because the longevity of the battle is so much greater than expected, troops are being asked to do a lot more than it was expected that they would be asked to do. They're being pushed into the experience of combat for a longer duration. And the longer you're experiencing it, the more casualties you're going to going to sustain. Because they're on the line and they keep, they have to stay on the line, they continue to sustain these casualties up to the point where they begin to critically start losing officers. I mean, just to put it in perspective, there's one chilling thing about Peleliu that um, I always make it a point to bring up to people in that the 81st Infantry Division ultimately gets some tanks that roll up onto the Umerbrogel Hill Complex. And the way that they get up there is that the the, the engineers from the 81st division, they build a ramp that makes it possible for the tanks to drive up because it's really in not so much. It's partly a hill complex, but it's also partly this uplifted coral plane. So it's a plane with hills dominating it, but the whole thing has been shoved upward by tectonic activity. And so you had to get them up. You had to get the tanks up on this plane and they had to build this pathway for the tanks. And as army soldiers from 81st division fought their way up through this area where this um, to this, what is now called the Wildcat Bowl, because the 81st Division was nicknamed the Wildcat Division. And it's this large bowl area that was part of this uplifted coral plain. As they fought their way up to that, the way that some of these 81st Division soldiers got up there, because the Japanese in the pocket covered all avenues of approach with automatic weapons fire. And the Japanese had some of the finest automatic weapons of the Second World War. And so the, everything was covered by automatic weapons fire. So whenever they attempted to move up toward this bowl, the army troops drew fire. And the way they ultimately got men up there and knocked out the positions firing on them was that they would feed men up and they would belly crawl up and drag sandbags. And they would push the sandbag in front of them, crawl up a few inches, push the sandbag again, crawl up more. And the sandbag was there to protect you from the machine gun fire. If that's not hardcore, I don't know what is. That's how this battle was fought during the third phase. And when you're fighting under circumstances like this, where the attacking force has no cover, the opposing force is nothing but cover and automatic weapons, you're going to lose, you're going to lose a lot of people. And who is it you're going to lose first? It's going to be your, um, squad and platoon level leadership. Because why? Because they're up in front. You're gonna, you might lose a company commander here and there, but you're gonna lose these, the, the senior NCOs and the junior officers at an astonishing level. And that's what's depicted here. That's this breaking point that they pass because they've lost the, the, these critical senior NCO and junior officer leaders. And that's because 
Uh, think of it like this. You ever seen the old trip? I can't remember what movie it's from, but there's a movie where somebody puts his hand over a candle to see how long he can keep his hand over the candle before it gets so hot. That's what it's like for troops in combat. You put them over, the longer that you're, you hold your hand over the candle, the hotter it's going to get and the more uncomfortable it's going to get. In addition to that, the way that the Marine Corps was conceived of, of fighting in the Pacific was a bit different than the way that the Army was going to fight because the two forces it was thought would complement one another in the overall strategy of, of the way that they approached these battles because the way it was thought that they would approach these battles was that the Marine Corps would be the shock force. The Marine Corps would be the force that would conduct the amphibious landing and that it would move quickly into the interior and that the Marine Corps would have to move quickly as it pushed into the interior to secure the beachhead and that it would then be followed by the army and that when the army reached the battlefield, the army would have this more methodical approach because the army would have the benefit of the beachhead is already well established because the Marines did it. The army would then move in and using... Um, using triumph by fire strategy, meaning using overwhelming artillery support and coordinated tactical close air support, the army would mo move sm slowly and more methodically. And an interesting thing happens on Peleliu in that the Marines, they are used to fight in the way that they're originally conceived as a shock force to move in, establish the beachhead and rush into the interior. But then the Marines begin getting called on to fight like the army did using the slow but methodical process of, of creeping forward, using supporting fires against the enemy. And that's part of the reason why you've got Marines on the island far longer than they're supposed to be. I mean, the battle goes on far, far longer than it was supposed to go on. And the Marines are being asked to stay in that fight far longer. Because even if it had been a three-day fight, it's, you would not have experienced this long, drawn-out, attritional misery that leads ultimately to losing senior NCO and junior officer leadership. Yeah, you might have lost some people, but the, the battle wouldn't have stretched out. Um, but the Japanese, they get a vote in this. And the Japanese were like, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to take this island in three days. You're going to sit here and bleed. And they beat the shit out of us on that island. And it, it is a testament to the, the Japanese strategic vision that understood this is how you deal with the Americans. You don't let them have their circumstance. Don't come out in the open because you're giving them what they want. You're gonna don't give them a John Bassalone moment because you're gonna have Americans with machine guns that are just gonna bring you down. Don't have anything out in the open that can be targeted by their naval gunfire support offshore. Dig everything into into the rock of the Umabrogo. Then then their airplanes can't get to you. Their naval gunnery can't really get to you. The only way they can get to you at that point is corkscrew and blowtorch to move up into the hill mass using flamethrowers and fire teams to methodically move basically feet at a time. And it was a brilliant way of forcing us into circumstances that we didn't want. Because by forcing us into those circumstances, you make Marines K-35 suffer a lot longer than they should have and lose more people than they should have, and critically lose senior NCO and junior officer leadership. Well, at the very end of episode seven, there's it gives a little bit of the timeline, and you had mentioned that the battle there was 73 days. 
But at the end of that episode, we see the men going back to Pavuvu in October of 1944. And earlier, it mentioned that they had landed in September. So I'm curious, if were there people that were going back and forth during this process? Or did we only see like a portion of it in the show? We're only seeing a portion of it because, I mean, there were still operations in the Solomon Islands. I mean, Guadalcanal, Pavuvu, and much of the Solomons, they were... Uh, after we captured everything back in 42 and 43, we used that through to the end of the war um, as a staging area, as a supply area. And just like we used New Guinea through to the end of the war, even though we were fighting on the north coast of New Guinea through to the end. And we used those staging areas. And as people were casualties in the Peleliu battle or other battles, like for Iwo Jima, people tended to be evacuated back to Guam because Guam was close for Peleliu, people were tending to be evacuated back to locations in the Solomon Islands, and that happened some too. And the the main the main issue was that if you had someone who was a combat a combat casualty, like Lecky, for example, was get them out of the immediate battle area as fast as you can. Why? Because when they're in the battle area as a casualty, they're just consuming resources. And what you have to do is free those resources up for someone who is combat capable. So if you have somebody that's off, is no longer combat capable, get them out as fast as you can. Let them become the logistical problem of the area that's that's not currently the scene of a massive battle. And bring in only people who can still fight, that still have something that they can give to the action. And so that's why you're seeing evacuations during the course of the campaign. Okay, that make that makes sense. That makes sense. The logistical nightmares <laughs> in the Pacific. Yeah, I, I love to mention too that like the logistics of the Pacific are so much different than the logistics of the European theater. Not to say that they were easy in Europe, but they had they had their challenges. They just were different. You had rear areas, so that for example, um, I love to point this out that we, although we had captured Guam, Saipan, and Tinian in 1944. The islands were not big enough to take and put a marine division there to train for the invasion of Iwo Jima. So we'll see this in our next chat. But John Bassalone ultimately becomes cadre in the 5th Marine Division. And Bassalone ends up going back to where? Going all the way back to Hawaii. And that's because Hawaii had room to park people, uh, to park divisions and train them and and provide them. And the supply lines were shorter. The supply lines back to North America were quite a bit shorter. But then when the 5th Marine Division stages to Iwo Jima, they stage from Hawaii. And there's nothing in, there's no service station in between. It's nothing but open Pacific Ocean. And it fascinates me, the logistics that are associated with that. Like, just to give you one quick anecdotal story, I've done some writing about this thing that happens at the end of the 2nd Marine Division's battle on Tarawa in 1943. And that is that the Tarawa battle, it it goes on for 72 hours. It's a lot longer than they expected. They expected it to be one day. It ends up going on for 72 hours. There's a theme going here. I was going to say, I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> Sound familiar? And at the end of the Tarawa battle, the 2nd Marine Division, it stays after it captures the objective. But the 2nd Marine Division had sustained a thousand casualties over the course of that battle and several hundred dead. And the, they, the, with the ships that came 
to the Gilbert Islands to support that operation, they didn't have enough space in the freezers to take all the dead back to Hawaii. And so they created some mass graves on Tarawa. And the mass graves, it was understood from the start, these are going to be temporary. It included even there was a Medal of Honor recipient who was placed in one of the mass graves on Tarawa because it was assumed from the start this is temporary because when that battle ended, the clock was ticking. And that clock that was ticking was the clock that was the freezer capacity on board the ships, the amount of fresh water they had and the, the amount of food they had. So if they were going to stay there much longer, they were going to need more food and more water because there's no food and water on that island. And so the result was they had to make this decision on the fly of like, all right, we can't prepare a proper cemetery. We don't have time because we got to get the hell out of here. We have to get back to where there's food and water. So let's do mass graves, mark them, and we'll come back for them later. As it turns out, they came back for them after the war and the Navy had moved in and built facilities over the top of the mass graves. And so there are still mass graves on Tarawa today because of this one oversight. And this oversight was caused by the monstrous, the towering logistical challenges that the Pacific War presented. Well, that brings us to an end of today's episodes, but we will be back to finish the look at the Pacific. Until then, Marty, can you fill in the listeners and what you've been working on? Yeah. Be sure to continue watching the Discovery Channel. You'll see a special documentary that I've been working on for many, many months now about the Japanese Fugo balloon bomb campaign in 1944 and 1945. I believe that's going to be out in November. But also in November, specifically on November 5th, the release of Call of Duty Vanguard, which is not to be overlooked, just in time for the Christmas shopping season. And I've worked for Sledgehammer Games as an historical consultant since 2015. And I worked extensively during the COVID lockdown on Call of Duty Vanguard and very excited to see it It is releasing here in in just a few weeks. So if you enjoy first-person shooter video games, check this out. I think you'll like it. (laughs) (laughs) Can I count you as one of our players? I I enjoy the World War II um, Call of Duty games. Did you? More so than the modern modern warfare ones. I, I think it's just because the history side of it too. But I don't know. The, the futuristic ones are not as fun for me. I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> Wish there were another five or six million people like you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Dan. I'll talk to you again soon. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Marty Morgan once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in episodes 5, 6, and 7 of HBO's miniseries, The Pacific. And of course, don't forget to check out Marty's latest work on the Discovery Channel, as well as in Call of Duty Vanguard. And as always, you can find all of the links mentioned in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the Americans and Germans had an agreement for how prisoners would be treated, while the Americans and Japanese had no agreement. Number two, the Japanese launched a number of major offensives against the Americans on Peleliu. 
Number three, some of the containers used to deliver potable water to the Marines had been used to carry gas. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number one. The Americans and Germans had an agreement for how prisoners would be treated, while the Americans and Japanese had no agreement. That is true. As Marty explained, there were a number of conventions in place, uh, the Hague and Geneva Conventions, for example. These governed a lot of things about the conflict, but one of them was how prisoners were to be treated. The Germans, Italians, and the United States were among the countries to sign those agreements, while the Japanese did not. Continuing along to number two, the Japanese launched a number of major offensives against the Americans on Peleliu. That's the lie. As Marty told us that by the time the Battle of Peleliu took place, the Japanese strategy had shifted to one of defensive attrition. Their overall strategy was to fight from behind defensive positions instead of out in the open. That means number three is also true. Some of the containers used to deliver potable water to the Marines had been used to carry gas. As we learned, unfortunately, some of the containers used to deliver that potable water had been used to carry gas before. And even though they were washed out, they weren't to the point to where that water inside was really safe to drink. So you're on an island in Peleliu near the equator where water was obviously a big deal. This cost the Marines some much-needed potable water. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have these statistics for my own show. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 54 hours to create. And as I always do, I want to make sure that I make it clear that that time is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 54 hours does not include any of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include any of the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Base on a True Story website, uh, social media, email newsletter, all those other things outside of creating this one episode that are still required to make a podcast. Those things all take time to set up. They take time to maintain and they cost money to set up and maintain. And those things go beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But they are still required because if I didn't do any of those things, there wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that is why I'm so thankful for these sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. Take advantage of some of those great offers. But they are not the only ones helping to keep this show alive. Nope, there are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. So if you found value in today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.